Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I'm in with the in crowd because the in crowd listens to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank whatever band or person wrote that absolutely horrible song way back expressing their love for the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. It is the only wicked good podcast out there. It's the People's Podcast. It's the major league of professional wrestling podcast. This podcast is going to come out the Friday after Thanksgiving. I hope you all had a spectacular holiday. And because of that, not even because of that, but because it's a long weekend, we are going to have a much longer episode of Stick to Wrestling than usual. I'm going to try to keep it to one episode, but if it like, gets really long, I'll chop it in two. But anyway, I have had this podcast circled for months, and I was thinking about how I wanted to do it and who I wanted to do it with, and ultimately, Thomas Bain got the call. Thomas, thank you for being on Stick to Wrestling. Thank you, John. Glad you could call me up for November sweeps. Um, so <laughs> There you go. This is, this is definitely an episode that I didn't think we would dive into, but I am really excited to talk about it. All right. And what this episode is and Brian okayed it, which made me very happy. Um, Dave Meltzer had the old Iata wrestling show. It was on Monday through Friday and it was part of my life. I listened to that show every single day. I didn't listen to the whole thing every single day, but that, that 30 minutes, the first 30 minutes, I was not going to bed without listening to. Then out of nowhere, the Iata show was canceled. Like Dave was like, this is the last show I'm ever doing. Iata's going, you know, going away after this. And I was like, that sucked. That really sucks. It was a great show. Then he came back with CBS Sportsline, a weekly show, and it just wasn't the same. I mean, Dave and Brian were, were entertaining. But like I said, it just wasn't the same as having it every single day. Plus, by then, the WWF had sucked up WCW and ECW had collapsed. So there really wasn't much to talk about day to day like there was beforehand. Getting to this in the end of 2003. Now, Dave would usually have a wrestling guest on. He had uh, Cactus Jack. He had Jim Cornette. He had a bunch of people. At the end of 2003, Ole Anderson came out with his biography, and he was a guest on Dave's show. And to say the very least, it was fireworks. We are going to play that broadcast from 17 long years ago and go in for commentary. Lou, if you could start playing the Ole Anderson interview now, that would be appreciated. And we have Ole Anderson, uh, one of the legends of professional wrestling, who just come out with a book called Inside Out, How Corporate America Destroyed Professional Wrestling. It is available, and we'll give this a couple of times during the next hour and 20 or so minutes, um, at www1, which is the numeral one, wrestlinglegends.com. Ole Anderson and Scott Teal put this book together. We'll, you can also order it uh, by the mail at Scott Teal, P.O. Box 2781, Hendersonville, Tennessee, 37077. And you can go to that website. It'll have all pricing information. And also, you can call you can uh, call us at one eight seven one eight seven eight play one eight hundred eight seven eight play. If you have any questions about Ole Anderson's career, Georgia Championship Wrestling when it first went on the cable, he was the guy who was booking it for um, the late seventies into the early eighties. He ran the company for a couple of years. 
uh, Black Saturday, one of the most memorable um, days in a lot of people's mind in professional wrestling. July 1984, suddenly Vince McMahon was on the Superstation, and there was quite a legal fight going on before that. But I want to welcome Ole Anderson to the show. And Ole, I guess the first thing, because we've already had calls, we were to call about this, is um, the whole thing in 1984 with uh, Vince McMahon buying Georgia Championship Wrestling. And, and in your book, there was a re- really interesting, because I think that... Um, there was a clause in the contract. You you halfway saw it coming, but couldn't stop it. No, I exa- I knew exactly what was coming, but the problem was I was being advised by these people who are supposed to be so smart, called attorneys, and when I talked to them about it, they told me I was incorrect, that what I was reading uh, could be interpreted entirely differently to mean that the way it had been handled before meant that it would be handled that way in the future. That is to say, anybody that was a stockholder would be able to have first right of refusal to purchase the stock. And then if there was nobody who was already a stockholder that wanted that stock, that they would then be able to get somebody else to buy it if, if everybody agreed. And if any one person objected to that purchase by this person who wasn't a stockholder, the deal wouldn't go through. But I kept on reading the diagon thing, which simply said if a majority of the stockholders decide to uh, vote to rescind this agreement, that that's what would happen. Well, if you've seen the book, then you know that's exactly what happened. Uh, what was it like as far as um, the, the the purchase of the, the majority interest in Georgia Championship Wrestling? Um, I'm trying to remember the timetable, but I remember it was like maybe a couple of months or a month or so before they actually took over the station, and I think you may have gotten an injunction and then they got the they got the prime time slots, and then you got on TV, which Vince McMahon I don't think uh, was expecting, on a very early uh, Saturday morning show, like within a week or two, because of all the the furor. Same week. Yeah, the so, same week that he bought us out, he bought me out uh, on a Wednesday, I believe it was, and on that following Saturday, you know, how many days later, Thursday, Friday, three days later. I was on TV, but it was a lousy time slot. They took the one that Georgia Championship had. I uh, couldn't do anything about that. And so they put me on for an hour at uh, 7 or 7.30 on a Saturday morning, which was, you know, better than nothing, but it was almost close to nothing. And uh, that's that's it. That's what happened. You know, what made you uh, want to write a book? Well... There's been an awful lot of books about wrestling, and for the most part, if you can tell me about one that was number one factual, uh, you'll have to point it out because I'm not aware of it. Uh, I've been getting reports or had been told by different people uh, about different books that were being written. Uh, the only one that I read uh, that I liked was the one by uh, Lou Fez. Uh, there was one by Arn, which was so fictitious, so blatantly bullshit that uh, I even talked to him one time. I said, when was it that you kicked my butt? Well, anyway. (laughs) So to have those kind of stories in there, uh, I thought uh, so misleading. Because surely after Vince McMahon goes ahead and makes a statement that uh, we're only in competition with uh, Walt Disney World, uh, where are you going to be able to come off with the idea that you're going to try to persuade people now that uh, everything is a contest on a daily basis? And on my book, I refer to the fact that, uh, like Lou, 
there was an occasion, uh, a shoot here or there, and then I did a lot of shooting from the standpoint of marks and things like that, but uh, in professional wrestling itself, there were very few instances where there would be what we would call a shoot, and if there was a shoot, um, it might last 15 30 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and they would be over, generally speaking, because the guy would say, okay, I, you know, I, I, I see all I want. Uh, let, let's go ahead and work. Mm -hmm. Thomas, have you read either Ole's book or Arn's book? I wasn't aware Arn had written a book until listening to this interview. Ole's book, I can't imagine, is anything more than the angry guy at the grocery store who's mad because the bread got smashed in the bottom of the bag. That's that, what the book was like. You know, call me cantankerous is what it probably should have been titled other than what the title was. <laughs> I mean, I can think of a lot more practical methods for a bitch session other than just writing a book and, and then <laughs> going on to promote it on a guy who will later find out he probably absolutely despises. So to say that he came to this show looking for a fight is probably an understatement. Yeah, it, it, it's going fairly well so far, given you know, we're only like four or five minutes into it. I read Oli's book about 10 years ago, uh, pro probably more like 12. And I know a lot of people who absolutely love the book. I did not. I couldn't stand the book, to be honest with you. I was about two-thirds of the way through it, and I was just like, I'm not going to make it. I am not going to finish this book. I am not having a good time reading this book. And then I took a look, and like the, like the half of it, more than half of it, was uh, the back was like credits and references. So I crawled to the finish line. But I know a lot of people who like the book, and maybe it's just me, but I thought Oli was just so repetitive. He made so many false equivalencies. You know, I, I, I did not like it. And always started the book by saying, OK, I may have a few facts not in order, but I'm telling you right now, every word I'm going to tell you is the truth. And there were things he said in that book that he could not possibly have known that he wasn't incorrect. Like I did, never knew anything about guys doing steroids. Yeah, right. You've got the road warriors, dude. So I don't know. But Arn's book which Thomas obviously is not read because he didn't know it existed. Arn's book was also terrible. It, it was like he was trying to walk the line between like uh, shooting, if you would, and kayfabe. Like he would talk about him and Ole going into the cage in Atlanta and going after Dusty like it was a shoot. And it's just like you got to pick one side or the other. So two books I wouldn't recommend. Thomas, I was very surprised that Ole couldn't get a better slot on Saturday. I mean. The wrestling show on TBS was the second highest rated show behind Braves baseball, which I guess is to say is it was the best rated show on TBS um, when the Braves were in playing. I mean, do you have any thoughts on it? It was on literally at 6.05 in the morning, and then a month into it, they put it on at 7.05. Well, I wonder with the slot that Vince had, if there was some sort of non-exclusive clause meaning that wrestling couldn't be on two hours before or two hours after because common sense would tell you oh hey i have this you know time right here marked for wrestling let me just you know shoehorn it before or after wwf that's what probably you know i would do if i were a, a, a tbs executive 
So I'm wondering if, you know, there's some kind of like, no, no, not pay to play is the thing I'm thinking of here, but there's some kind of clause in there that wrestling couldn't be anywhere around it as opposed to, you know, 6.05 in the morning. Yeah, I mean, I thought about that as well. And, and it's definitely possible. I don't think so, though, because Ted Turner was a very, uh, had a good relationship with the wrestling company. So I think they kind of, the wrestling company kind of knew that Turner wasn't going to turn around and put, you know, a competitor on at 8.05. And even back then, in the late 70s, early 80s, to me, that would have enhanced the Georgia product more than it would have taken away. I mean, it would have given the viewers more reason to tune in at 6.05 because now you got three hours of wrestling coming up. The one thing about this interview that they don't go into, but it's brought up at the beginning of this show because, you know, stupid me, I listen to the whole damn thing. Do yourself <laughs> a favor and, and don't do that. But a caller calls in and it seems like on this show, either there were no, they, they talk about having a phone line, but this show either edits out all the phone calls or Dave didn't take any. But a person did call at the beginning asking about the infamous 1983 meeting with Ole and Vince. And really, well, Ole, Vince, and Linda. And Dave said he would get into it and ask Ole about it. But as you, could, you know, as you can well imagine, we're doing a show about it 17 years later. This show takes a hard right early on. Oh, and we this, never get into that. This show, I mean, you're gonna, we're all going to see it pretty quickly. I mean. I would say around the 15, 20 minute mark, things start getting out of hand. And, and by the end, oh boy. All right, let, let's continue listening to this interview. Now, did you, so you didn't see Jim Wilson's book? Pardon me? You haven't seen Jim Wilson's book? Uh, can I swear on this thing? Um, no, you really shouldn't. <laughs> get in trouble. Well, I'll tell you what. I only know or knew him very briefly and uh, he is such a uh, what I knew of him was was not impressive um, I know he's written a book I haven't seen it and I only have heard about it uh, from some people and they told me that there's a lot of uh, apparently he's gotten a lot of information from attorneys that were handling some of the cases that would involve Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, but not having seen it, I'm not quite sure what, what's going on, but uh, the statement was made to me that Georgia Championship was uh, in trouble financially, and of course that's true. That's one of the reasons I took over in 1983. Uh, anything else? If, if you're aware of it, tell me what it is, and I'll try to respond. But oh, I mean, I mean, the one, the one thing he he claimed that um, at one point, I mean, he had a lot of stuff. But one of the things that he mentioned was, and I guess this would be um, late '70s because you were booking Atlanta, and he had made a deal with Barnett that he would drop a lawsuit if he would get a job. And then he said that uh, then, and I don't even know if he dealt with you. I mean, it was just like he would call Barnett, and you know how Barnett is. Um, and but and he may have talked to you about it. I don't know. I mean, were, were, was it ever even? Did he ever talk? Were you ever even talked with about you know hire Jim Wilson or was it just like never even came up? Never. Okay. Never. I was the guy. I mean, I've heard people tell me that either his story, what he had, what he had said at different times, was the fact that Barnett was asking him to do some kind of sexual act, what the hell ever that might be, and that uh, he refused, and as a result, Barnett wouldn't book him. Uh, I booked 
and that was it. And uh, nobody would have been able to, uh, if I wanted the guy, I would have booked him. That's all there is to it. So if he has any comments about the fact that he and Barnett had some personal problem, uh, it wouldn't affect me at all in the event that I wanted to use him. I would have used him. That's all. How did you first start booking in Atlanta? I was up in the uh, Carolinas, and uh, I had worked for Barnett in 74. Gene and I came down in 74 and worked here, uh, oh, well, from the time that Barnett came back from Australia. Uh, somewhere in uh, April, I think it was, of 74, Louis Tillette was just starting. Well, once again, it's in my book, a little more detail. But anyway, uh, we stayed here until uh, November, and then we went back up to the uh, Carolinas. And uh, by that time, Louis Tillette had come and gone, and Harley Race had come and was getting ready to go. And uh, Barnett hired uh, uh, Tom Ernesto. So we were up in the Carolinas, all of 75. We made pretty good money up there. And uh, in 76, Barnett decided to get rid of Tom Ernesto and uh, came up to Carolinas to see us and uh, ask us if we'd want to come down and book. So that's how I came back to the Carolinas, or came back to Georgia in 76 and started booking. Now, in, I guess Georgia, from what I gather, in the late 70s was a pretty hot territory. And then, and I'm not sure, I guess maybe around 1980-ish, um, it started having some financial hard times. How much of that do you credit to the lawsuits, or do you think that it, it was, was, business, you know, was, was it just bad business? Was it Barnett spending? I mean, what, was it all of those things where the company started? Because before you took over, the company had gotten, you know, pretty decently in debt. Well, the business was very good, and we did, uh, we did sell out business all during 76 up into April of 77, you know, the Omni, the auditorium. We were doing uh, great business in the other towns as well. Business in, in the Georgia Territory did very, very well all the way from, oh, 76, well, here, I started, like I say, in 76, and the first thing that Barnett said to me uh, when we started in September or October of 76 was, uh, I expect a sellout at the Omni Thanksgiving. Well, we had uh, five or six weeks to make that happen, and, of course, the Thanksgiving show did sell out not only in the Atlanta Omni but also in Columbus, Georgia, the same day. And we stayed like that until 77 but the business was good all the way until 1984 uh there were a couple of uh there were periods in the early 80s that were up and down oh and the, what year are we talking about um in the late 80 uh, i wasn't booking yeah i mean, I mean I'm, I'm trying to remember there were there, you know it had a, it had its ups and robert fuller was here yeah i remember the robert fuller period all right and mm -hmm. then i came back and then i left again and then bill watts was here for about three or four months and then barnett called me again and i came back but while i was here we uh bill watts started it but uh, we improved on what he started which was uh, working up in uh, columbus ohio and we expanded that to uh michigan uh west virginia ohio and eventually, uh, 
Maryland, Baltimore in particular, and then some of the towns up in uh, Pennsylvania. And we did nothing but uh, great business. Uh, Cleveland was a sellout virtually every three weeks. Uh, Columbus had been a sellout. People, well, it was just it was just big business. So all through uh, the latter months of uh, 80, 81, and 82, and 83, we were doing real big business all over. Okay, not to ask the same question of Thomas over and over again, but Thomas, have you read uh, Jim Wilson's book? Actually, uh, unless you were you know in the publication. In, in the printing press, I don't think anybody's actually read Jim Wilson's book. I know uh, through listening to various podcasts that he claims that there were plans from become the NWA world champion, that he was blackballed by Jim Barnett. It's as fictional as the stand by Stephen King, as far as I'm concerned. Because <laughs> everything I've heard about Jim Wilson is Jim Wilson was a, a lower third of the card guy's entire career. And I think it's one of these things where he's trying to puff up his importance in the business. And by doing that, he probably didn't realize that 25 years later, a thing called the Internet would totally call him out on his bullshit. So, Yeah, I was comped a copy of Jim Wilson's book, I want to say in 1999. It was a good enough read when you can tell it wasn't Jim Wilson doing the actual writing. I forget who, you know, it was Jim Wilson with whoever the other person was. And the, the other person had a lot of good history on wrestling in general and Georgia specifically. But Jim Wilson tells a story in that book where he, you know, he played football at the University of Georgia. So, I mean, you, you have to be good, you know, just to be able to do that. Uh, he claims he played in the NFL, but he's not in the NFL encyclopedia. He's not on footballreference.com. And he told a story about when he was at Georgia, when he was a freshman, he got up and challenged the entire locker room to a fight. Now, Thomas, every locker room I've ever been in, you would quickly find yourself embedded in the plumbing if you ever tried that as an underclassman. Uh, even even if as, as a senior, I think someone's going to you know jump up and, and take you on. Yeah. <laughs> In a, in, in a SEC football uh, locker room, there's always going to be at least, I don't care if you're the biggest, baddest dude in the, on the block, there's one or two guys that are crazy enough just to do it anyway, just to do it. Right. Well, yeah, he, he's claiming he did this as a freshman, which, I mean, you know, th- that's playing comedy. So, so right there, Jim Wilson's credibility goes down the tubes. I saw him for the first time when he was on 2020, back in early 1985, which was the Eddie Mansfield exposing the business show. Now, I absolutely knew who Eddie Mansfield was. And now I've got this guy, Jim Wilson, who I had literally never heard of. I had been a hardcore wrestling fan for about 10 years. And this guy, once again, never heard the name, is claiming that he would have gotten the NWA title had he agreed to sleep with this guy, Jim Barnett. and. It's it's implausible, like you said. It is complete fiction. There's no, you know, I mean, I don't even need to explain that the rest of the NWA promoters were not going to go along with this. Like I don't know, the, I don't know the time frame, but it's like okay, Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Harley Race, whoever it was, go take a seat. Jim Wilson's taking your job. If you want to find a good synopsis of what Jim Wilson is, go on YouTube and find the Morton Downing Jr. episode with Doctor D. David Schultz. Yep. 
that has, I believe it's, I believe Captain Lou Albano's on it. And I, the defending wrestling people are Captain Lou Albano, Dr. D is John Arezzi on that episode as well. I don't believe John was on Dennis Carluzzo was on and yeah, I'm going to okay. let you finish making your point, but I know people who were there and I, I have a quick story about that. Jim Wilson, this episode probably came out in 87, 88. 88. And he looks like he's wearing one of Bob Backlund's leisure suits from uh, <laughs> Championship Wrestling, first of all. And he comes in, and I swear to God, it looks like he's wearing a toupee. So when you have Jim Wilson and you have Thunderbolt Patterson as the ones that are saying, you know, everything that's wrong with wrestling, and then you have Dr. D. David Schultz, and then you have the original Jerry Springer ringmaster and Morton Downey Jr. It's just a complete circus. Yes. And anything that you thought was credible about anybody that's a part of that show is out the window. It's a bad thing when Lou Albano seems like the voice of reason in a wrestling roundtable. <laughs> this show, yes, go on YouTube and check this out. It's got a pretty crazy ending. And it's Lou Albano basically, you know, swearing on everything holy that pro wrestling is not at all fixed. And you've got Thunderbolt Patterson wearing a Justice for Janitors t-shirt. And I know I know people who are on the show. I know Dennis Carluzzo, and I know another few people who are there. Watch the entire show on YouTube, right? They intro the show, they do some talking, they go on a break. A guy who was there tells me that like one of the producers starts yelling at everyone, you're not being crazy enough. You, you guys need to start yelling at each other. And as soon as they come off break, these guys are at war. It was, you know, wrestling's not the only thing out there that's fixed. Well, when it, when it first came on, like Jim Wilson's being very calm. It's very, you know, it's almost like Phil Donahue-esque when it comes up. Because obviously when Donahue had the uh, WWF scandal back in 91, it's very, almost like a real talk show. And then David Schultz comes on, then Thunderbolt comes on, then Captain Lou comes on. And I forgot about Ted Arcidi being on there. Oh, that's right. There's another one on there that just goes off the rails. So I don't even know why they thought Ted Arcidi would, would be a good where, – where did they find him out of? I mean, the show's in New York. Ted lives in Boston. Was he still in – he might have been in world class at the time. I'm not sure if he – was there if he was in Calgary or where he was in 88, but I think he was, st- no, he they- just left world class. Okay. But yeah, just a, a quick side point for the next thing. I used to live walking distance from Ted RCD's women's gym in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I, I regret never walking in there and saying hi to him because everyone says he's a really good guy. But anyway, Oli says that he was selling out all over the place. 76, 77, I don't know specifically if the Thanksgiving show sold out. Maybe it did, but I know that promotion consistently had problems with the Omni because when the city auditorium closed down, that was a small enough venue, but the Omni was really big and they're running shows every two or three weeks and everyone knew you could buy tickets the day of the show. And I know they always had problems with the Omni. So always, you know, I'm not saying he's lying, but he's just not telling the truth. I was always of the understanding that the Christmas and Thanksgiving shows, those were just the ones that were kind of like the freebies. Like the, they were the ones that were the, the easy ones to sell out. That's why there was always like a tag team tournament or some kind of special attraction. They didn't really blow off feuds during the holiday shows because they didn't have to. That's why you would see some kind of, you know, tag team tournament, you know, and they would bring in Andre the Giant because they knew they could sell out that the arena on, on Thanksgiving and Christmas for that reason. 
and I believe, you know, I don't think they would have ran two shows on Thanksgiving night, as always said, in Columbus and Atlanta, if they were at least going to sell out the Omni. Yeah. I mean, and, and another thing, I also specifically remember seeing an ad. I want to say when I first started getting TBS 1981, that they were had a big Thanksgiving show, like you said, with the tag team tournament that the Armstrongs won on that year. And it was like kids get in free or kids get in for a, a dollar or something like that. I, I'm a, trying to remember something for like 40 years ago, but I'm like, wow, you know, the WWF never does that. So maybe that, you know, it's more important that you get a big gate than a sellout. And obviously if they're giving away tickets for, with uh, kids tickets, you're not getting a big gate. And remember one thing too, in the, in the late seventies, after the four o'clock Thanksgiving game, which would end around seven or seven fifteen. There was nothing else on TV after that. It right. was going to be reruns and maybe Christmas movies or whatever. Other than that, you were just sitting around, you know, shooting the bull. So, I mean, yeah, you, you have kids running around pissing you off. Yeah, take them to the wrestling show at the Omni. <laughs> so, it's as simple as that. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, that's right. When I was younger, I remember Thanksgiving, you know, there was there was younger meaning like, you know, 12, 13. There was nothing to do Thanksgiving night. And then, you know, high school, there was a big party every Thanksgiving. But anyway, let's go back to hearing Ole Anderson interviewed by Dave Meltzer. Now, um, when the said what caused it? Well, part of it was the fact that there was spending going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, because there was there was financial problems in the early '80s in that company, which you know, um, um, so so we, we, did you? I mean, like, how? What? What would you cause? Uh, what do you think caused the financial problems? Well, again, it depends on when we're talking about. During the period that I wasn't here, when Fuller was here, you can say Fuller, or you can say however it was booked wasn't done very well, and as a result, they weren't making a lot of money. But there was something else going on as well, and that was simply the idea that there were some expenses that had to be met, uh, which were extraordinary expenses. And uh, without somebody that was running the damn place uh, incurring those expenses, they wouldn't have had the problem. Hey, Dave. Yes. Let me ask you a question. Yes. Did I answer your first question, why I, got, <laughs> why I wrote the book? Not really. I'm starting to get to be old, and I forget what the heck I'm talking about. Okay. I have these flashbacks. I just want to tell what had happened as a cause to some of these stories that are just P.S. How's that? Okay. From 1979 to 1984, you had the most powerful television vehicle in the country. And you did expand Georgia Championship Wrestling into Michigan and Ohio and West Virginia. Were there any thoughts of going further, um, of going all over the country? Obviously, Vince Mann in 1984 did go all over the country and changed wrestling. What, were, what was the mindset in Georgia Championship Wrestling during those years when you had that, that outlet? Well, as you know, wrestling had always been territorial, right? Yep. So we were doing just just the same that had always been done from the beginning of professional wrestling, at least in this country, and that was territories. And the only reason that we went to the uh, Michigan area, we did that at first with the cooperation and the even assistance to some degree of, uh, of Eddie Farhat. But he... Well, anyway, things got carried away, and there was a little bit of a, a split between us in that regard. So anyway, we just ran it. He wasn't even running the doggone thing. Uh, I went to Cleveland after calling Vince McMahon Sr., and he said, yeah, that's okay, I don't mind, go ahead, because he thought Tom was dead. We sold out. 
Okay, first of all, everyone, sorry we got some background noise going on uh, with the audio. This is the best audio I could find from this interview. And, then, and there, you can hear Dave and Oli, but it's there and it's annoying. I apologize. I was curious, Thomas, I mean, I know you, you didn't read Oli's book, and I haven't read it in a while. He's talking about having you know major expenses. I'm trying to think what those could possibly be running a wrestling company. I imagine the expenses expenses were probably just running you know the tank town so to speak because they really drive them the fact that they were had you know two touring you know promotions of georgia's change wrestling you know one here one there sometimes three shows a night and when you're running that third show really all it is is overhead because it's maybe a maybe if you're lucky it, it's a high school gym that can seat 500 people that never sells out. Typically you probably have maybe a hundred people there. You got to pay the boys. You got to pay the ref. You got to pay, you know, this, you got to pay that. And you probably don't even bring home anything sniffing a profit, but you're running that show partially because you've always done it. And you don't want to deviate from that, which, you know, that area of the country did all the way until Eric Bischoff came in the uh, mid nineties and kind of shut down the, the smaller house shows. But it's done to kind of promote TV, which is shooting yourself in the foot because at that time, and I believe Oli mentioned this later on, TV was only done to promote the house shows. Right. So what are you doing running these small town house shows that, you know, if they make a dollar, literally a dollar, it's a great adventure because they're doing something with it. But really, at this point in time, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, your big towns, your, your Atlantas, your Romes, your Columbuses, those are the ones that make money. And then maybe your Clevelands and you know, going into West Virginia and uh, Southern Ohio make money. But those small towns, you know, on the way to and from, they don't even make your expenses going to the next town. Where like the WWF, they would run Wheeling and Steubenville on the way from Pittsburgh to Cleveland. Right. Or they would run something from Pittsburgh to Baltimore, Pittsburgh to Philly. They would hit those towns in between there. And that would really kind of pay the expenses to get from one town to the other. So it was total profit of those big towns. Here, when you run a big territory, like it was geographically at this point in time, because when you look at it, Georgia to Ohio in the late 70s is, is a big, a very big territory. Oh, yeah. And I would probably say second to Vern Gagne, probably the biggest territory area-wise in all of wrestling. So how do you make that a profit? And really, I think they shot themselves in the foot by only running just the big town. You know, I'm going to say something nice about Eric Bischoff, if anyone wants to fast-forward two minutes if you can't handle that. I mean, Eric Bischoff, in his book, talked about eliminating the house shows because they didn't totally eliminating them, but cutting back on them because they didn't make money. And it was like pro wrestling needed that outside voice. like. Yeah, we're running the towns every night because that's what we've always done. And, you know, by the time Turner bought the NWA, running every night was, I mean, it was not profitable. There was no point in it. Uh, you're out in Des Moines on a Tuesday night losing money, but it's because that's the way the wrestling business had always been run. And Eric was an outsider and he's like, look, we don't need to do this. Forget it. I read. It really was kind of a shoot interview. It was um, in one of Keiter's magazines, and he was talking to Wahoo McDaniel. And Wahoo was talking about how Atlanta was not drawing at all, and he blamed the fact that there was too much television. 
And I remember being taken aback by this because pretty much every wrestling show I had ever been to, one big exception in, in Nashville, New Hampshire, when Kowal- I think it was Kowalski was running it, like the place was full, whether it be the Boston Garden, Providence Civic Center, or you know the local high school. And I'm reading this, and there had always been that, that illusion to me that all of the promotions were doing really well. And that, that, and I was like, wow. And, and at that time, I thought, Georgia, this was like, I want to say the beginning of 1984. Georgia had just come off a really rough 1983, at least creatively, I thought. Two things killed, and I'll throw Georgia in with Mid-Atlantic here. Two things killed the house show business there. Number one. The reason why the WWF made so much money running the house show loop was why, John? Uh, because, because they, they ran monthly is a big yeah. is a big reason. Because they would merchandise the hell out of everything. They would sell every Hulk Hogan, anything you could think of, they would sell. Ditto for Randy Savage, ditto for Jake Roberts, you know, any ultimate warrior down the line. In the 80s, and, and we'll go from 1980 and beyond, how much Mid-Atlantic, Crockett, Georgia merchandise was there? There none. might have been an autograph table. Exactly. There was none. Absolutely none. The other thing was, when you had these big arena shows, if they wouldn't sell out, they would tend to paper the arena and hand out free tickets. Yeah. So then... At that point in time, you spoil the fan base to where they say, okay, I didn't get in free this time. I'll just wait till next time and yeah. they sit it out. They'll be back next month. I'll get in for free then. You kill your, you know, paying your fan base there. For the WWF, they would run maybe, maybe smaller arenas, maybe, you know, 10,000 feet places, you know, 8,000 feet places. And if they sold it out, great. But they didn't paper the Superdome when they ran Hulk Hogan Andre or Hulk Hogan, you know, Piper. They wouldn't paper. They if they sold, you know, fifteen hundred seats, so be it. You know, they're not going to fight Watts by giving away money. Right. They had the TV. They had the deal. They would do it their own way. They wouldn't kill the goose, which was the you know the paying the paying audience, and spoil them. Let I can Bill tell Watts you, paper. Let Jim Crockett paper. Yeah, I, I can tell you this. When I first started going to the wrestling at the Boston Garden in nineteen eighty one. There was no merchandise to be had. They would sell the Kiter magazines and the programs that Kiter ran, and that's it. If you went to a small show like in Fitchburg, Mass, or whatever, they usually had a program. Not every time. I remember some, you know, most of the time they, they had a program, but not every time. Then in 80, I want to say the end of 82, they had a small merch table at the Boston Garden with a really long line, and all they sold was eight by tens of the wrestlers, not autographed or anything like that. They were like two dollars each, and I think you had a choice of like six wrestlers. Then in '84, it all started changing, and by the middle of '84, they had a huge merchandise table with all kinds of stuff. The number one question I've always had in wrestling—I don't know if you have seen this, Thomas. Southwest Championship Wrestling used to have heavily push their merchandise on TV. They had an I Hate Tully t-shirt. They had a Bob Sweetan t-shirt. They had pictures of all the wrestlers. I would kill to know how much they sold on that. Well, I, I can imagine the fact they couldn't pay their bills to be on USA. It wasn't very worthwhile. <laughs> so, no. Speaking of, back to what you said before, Wahoo McDaniel, one of my biggest 
earworms in wrestling is how Ric Flair was Wahoo's friend for over 20 years, yet he always called him Wahoo McDaniels. <laughs> I don't know why, but that drives me freaking insane. <laughs> oh, I mean, the, the amount of love Ric Flair had towards Wahoo McDaniel was amazing. Harley Race and Wahoo McDaniel were like his idols. All right, we will continue listening to Ole Anderson being interviewed by Dave Meltzer. So there was never any intention our part, on our part to go anywhere else in the country because of all these territories that existed, and we were part of the National Wrestling Alliance, and we respected that. And from time to time, we would always bring somebody in, let's say from Oklahoma, Bill Watts' place, or from Bob Geigel's place, or uh, wherever, and put them on our television that went all over the place because people would complain about our TV, but we couldn't do anything about that because TBS was going to be broadcast everywhere, and that's the end of the conversation. Um, but we didn't want to take advantage of it in the sense like Vince did by running in these other territories because we were members of this National Wrestling Alliance, and we respected their territories. That's all there was to it. You did not want to go because of the nature of the National Wrestling Alliance, you didn't want to infringe on other people's territories. Could you see during that period in the early 80s that there was an, almost an inevitability that the territorial system was going to collapse when somebody got national TV and was we able to... had national TV. Yeah, but when... Some, but, but the territorial... We had it before Vince had it. Right. But that, we had it for years before Vince had it. But did you see that the territorial system was going to eventually collapse when somebody with a good outlet, was going to not respect those boundaries and uh, present... Well, let me ask you this. How much do you know about Vince McMahon's operation? It's uh, <laughs> hard to say. <laughs> Probably a lot, actually. Well, let me ask you this question, then. How many times do you think that they were almost going to go under and they required help from other members of the NWA? Oh, you mean uh, Senior? I, you know, I don't know about Senior's operation. I know that Vince in 85... I know in Vince in 85... Um, had some problems, and if WrestleMania hadn't clicked, he'd have been in a lot of trouble, but it did click. Um, senior, was well, se- all I'm getting at is that throughout the years, everybody that was a member of the NWA would help one another on from time to time if they needed help, either with talent or however it was to be done. And in the early uh, 60s, Vince McMahon was running, Vince Sr. was running in uh, opposition or running with opposition's territory. Do you know about it? When Jim Crockett went up there? No, no, nothing to do with Jim Crockett. There was one Jim Crockett went up there. I remember Rocca tried to run opposition in there at one point. Well, Johnny Valentine was part of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, my point being at that time when they thought they were in a little bit of trouble because these guys were pretty doggone decent, they didn't have the big bucks behind them that Vince Sr. had, but he was, he, he was suffering. He was having a little bit of a problem. And so he called on other members of the NWA to give him a hand, and, and, and they did. Yeah, and I know in the so, se- in the seventies with the Eddie Einhorn thing that was followed all throughout the history of the NWA, and of course we could have very easily, being the first national television program, wrestling program, we could have easily done it any time from 1978 to 1984. But I wouldn't even consider it. All right, this is where I need to call Ole Anderson out a little bit. In 1983. You know, Ole claims that he was not expanding, that, you know, et cetera, he was going to stay where he was staying. Well, number one, his Michigan story is a bit disputed. I know Ed Farhat was not happy about the NWA allowing Ole to run in Michigan. I'm not sure every detail. I mean, Ole said at first he was working with him, then Farhat found, found himself on the way out. 
but I know Farhat was not happy. Number two, Ole was on TV, WTBS, summer of 1983. He brought in guys from Joe Blanchard's Southwest Championship Wrestling, and he clearly stated, wherever you are watching this program, pretty soon we're going to be having shows there. Thomas, your thoughts? The first thing that, that kind of jumped to mind is the fact that he had claimed, you know, no one saw this coming because they had bailed out Vince McMahon senior on numerous occasions, which I think the term bailed out is used very loosely. Yep. I can't see where Vince was, you know, hurting for money, running the territory that he ran. And then, and then he makes this big, uh, he has this moral superiority over you don't go into another man's territory sort of thing in the NWA. Now I could see, you know, they had problems with Eddie Ihorn or whatever it was, so be it. But correct me if I'm wrong here, John, when Ole expanded into West Virginia, mm-hmm. wasn't Jim Crockett already there? I don't believe so, but I know the WWF was running in West Virginia. So I'm not sure exactly where that hard line is, but I do know this. Thomas, you're from Pittsburgh. How far from Pittsburgh is Altoona, Pennsylvania? Pittsburgh from Altoona is about an hour, hour and 20 minutes, maybe. Okay. So it's in Pennsylvania, which is clearly WWF territory. And summer of 1983, Ole ran a show in Altoona, heavily promoted it on WTBS. And, you know, I'm watching this and I am just a magazine mark. And I'm like, there, there's something wrong here. He's there. That usually doesn't go on. The WWF doesn't run in Atlanta. And, you know, this promotion does not run in Pennsylvania. Yeah, put it this way. Pittsburgh, which was uh, the home of Bernardino Martino, obviously, when he was winding down and only doing kind of like the Pittsburgh shows towards the end, like in the 80, 81, right. he was still doing Altoona for the WWF. At the right. Time. So that, yeah, that, that's right in Vince's territory right there in Altoona. And Altoona, by this... Johnstown, those area, yeah. Yeah. Now, someone will, will probably be listening to this and say, okay, but Vince was going to run nationally anyway. And, you know, only running Altoona did not spark Vince McMahon to say, okay, I'm going to run nationally. But like Thomas said, you know, you can't claim this moral superiority when you are actively running in WWF territory, I'm sorry. The fact is, you know, Ole might have fired the first shot, but he had a little cap gun and Vince had a bazooka. Because <laughs> going to Altoona is one thing. Vince going out to California and gobbling, you know, Mike LaBelle's area, that, that's a whole other one. Now, exactly. We've talked about, we've talked about, you know, a little couple things before in a previous podcast about, Vince going, you know, to Larry Matisic or to George Cannon, et cetera, and wanted to go to Fritz and try to become partners and, and swallowing them up. I don't think Ole ever had the capital, even if, you know, let's say in 1980, he decided, you know what, it's time I'm going to go national. The biggest problem Ole Anderson had wasn't the talent. It wasn't the ability to have the finance to go out west. It was the fact that even if they toured across the country, Let's say Ole gets that bug and he goes into Vince's territory, goes into Vern's territory, goes into Dallas, he goes everywhere else. It's still Georgia Championship Wrestling. 
And by that notion right there, because Ole never changed it. Ole, he didn't pull a Bill Watson go from Mid-South to UWF when he went national. He kept it, even as he expanded, it was still Georgia Championship Wrestling. And if I'm sitting in Texas, I'm sitting in Chicago, I'm sitting in Los Angeles, when I see GCW on the air, I think that's a minor league promotion. It's not the WWF. It's not the AWA. It's not the National Wrestling Alliance. It's Georgia Championship Wrestling. Well, you know, I actually, they did change the name of it. And to me, this, this indicates that they kind of had to be thinking about rolling nationally because they changed the name of the show from Georgia Championship Wrestling to World Championship Wrestling right around the summer of 1982. The name of the company was still Georgia Championship Wrestling, but they changed the name of the show. Secondly, at the end of 1980, they gave up the Georgia Tag Team titles. They gave up the Georgia Heavyweight titles, and they changed it to the National Heavyweight Championship. So even then, I mean, I'm kind of thinking something's up. These guys are looking at going national. I think, you know, Ole acting like he was being blindsided by this. That's I'm sorry. That's a bit rich. I mean, Terry Funk said that as soon as he saw Georgia Championship Wrestling on cable in his home in Amarillo, and this is in 1979, I want to say it could be 78. I mean, Terry sold the Amarillo territory. He knew it was coming. But. When Ole changed GCW to World Championship Wrestling, wasn't that because Jim Barnett had finally come in and bought points? Because Jim Barnett, I believe, called his Australian promotion World Championship Wrestling, yes. if I'm not mistaken. He did. So I, I think Barnett getting points in that might have been, and I could be wrong, but I think Barnett coming in is what changes it to WCW. Uh, yes, he was in charge in 1982, and that's when they changed the name of the show from Georgia Championship Wrestling to World Championship Wrestling. So, I mean, to me, you've got to kind of think that they are now promoting something that is branded as national or world as opposed to local. At the same time, it I think that works out fine, but Georgia Championship Wrestling did have matches. They were still really promoting for the Omni. Mm-hmm. I think. And granted, WWF did this, and they did it successfully, this, you know, roughly the same way. But I think you have to have better TV matches before you branch out further west, so to speak. Because if you're getting squash matches and you're promoting the Omni, part of me says, well, why are they having this show now in Cleveland when they already had this match in the Omni? It's yeah, that's one of those things. Because then, it's one, like, when you watch WWF syndication, like back in the 80s, you didn't know, living in Pittsburgh, what the show was going to be at Madison Square Garden or at the Boston Garden. You only knew what was going to happen at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. And that's when you thought, okay, Hogan's going to fight Bundy in, at the Civic Arena for the world title. You kind of turned your – I mean, you probably knew if you were a smart fan they were going to go around the loop. But as a kid, you kind of thought, ooh, Hogan and Bundy are going to have the big payoff in Pittsburgh, you know. So you never that's really it. had that thing. It wasn't, okay, Hogan versus, you know, or I'm sorry, Piper versus Morocco at the Omni, but now they're coming to Cleveland in two weeks. That, that kind of takes the shine off of it. I, I agree with you, and you're right. I mean, back before I started getting WOR and cable, and by the way, that was a national show, so, I mean, I, I don't know what came out first, WTBS or WOR, but, you know, Vince did have a national outlet as, as early as, like, 78, 79, and yeah, when I was a kid, I had no idea what was going on outside of Boston TV. And then I started getting the magazines. But, you know, that's an excellent point. You know, they've already advertised this 
this show in Atlanta and now they want you to see it again in Cleveland or, you know, I know what you're saying. They, they do. It does take the shine off it. Yeah. At that point in time, it almost seems like you're recycling the recycling the same show. It, it, it's like a touring performance, so to speak. And also when you keep driving home at the Omni in Atlanta, at the Omni in Atlanta, at the Omni in Atlanta, it basically tells you if you live in another you know larger city and you're getting the second or third act of this feud, you're, you're second rate to, the, to Atlanta. And at that point in time, that leaves a sour taste in your mouth as well. I'm getting Piper Morocco part eight, so to speak. And by then it's like, ah, okay, you know, they've already had the blow off match at the Omni. They've already kind of, you know, Piper's already moving on or they're already moving on to something else. So I'm, they're just kind of playing out the string right now in Cleveland for my show. That's a, that's a really good point. And you're right. That's, that's the problem when you have national television. All right, let's go and hear more of Ole Anderson being interviewed by Dave Meltzer in 2003. Okay. Um, now, when Vince did it in 1984, changed the nature of the business, changed the, the structure of the business and everything like that, what was, uh, you know, and then bought your company basically from underneath you, um, what was your reaction as far as uh, – how how long of the lead time did you see that Vince Sr. was I mean Vince Jr. was going to go everywhere and also um, when it happened um, from what I gather you know you met with Vince Jr. and uh, you were not too kind to Vince Jr. is that correct? Oh no, hated the bastard. What? Hated him. Yeah. I wouldn't talk to him. Yeah. I uh, didn't say anything that was uh, that was nice at all to him because there's nothing to say nice to him or, or ni- nothing nice about him. Uh. He was good. He did what the heck he was able to do to take care of our company. He bought some guys out as a result. Again, I covered it in the book. If anybody wants to read it, they can find out. Have you read the book, by the way? Read it from cover to cover last week. Well, then all the questions you're asking me have already been answered, haven't they? I'm just trying to get your take on them. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's just... I didn't care for Vince. I didn't care for the way things were done. Knowing the past, which, of course, most people don't know... Uh, it would be like if I found you on the side of the road with a flat tire and I come over and I help you and I fix your tire, better yet, I give you my spare tire and then I uh, follow you down the road until you can get to a gas station where you can have it repaired properly or whatever it might be. And then a week later, I find you sticking knives in my tires and uh, forgetting what had happened the week before. So it was just very, very difficult to understand i knew what was going on and i knew in the meeting in 1983 when his father got up and uh said that uh they were going to withdraw from the nwa well then we knew i mean there was no question about what was going to happen uh people again i covered in the book the people at TBS were of the opinion that if you're from New York, you must know everything in the world. And they were very impressed with Vince. Uh, Vince was very uh, eager to please people uh, by doing things that looked very effective in the sense that uh, instead of Ole Anderson driving up in his old beat-up Ford and giving you a ride, Vince sent him a limousine. What were the uh, reactions of the other promoters that you knew when Vince did that? Was there talk of... Well, like when, when, yeah, when, Vince, when Vince Sr. actually, yeah, when he announced the resignation at the NWA meeting in, in 83, okay, 
how many of the guys, because I know that in, in 84, I felt that some of the promoters were still in denial. He'll never come after us. He may oh, come. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, and, 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 and Vince. Just like me, they couldn't believe they'd helped Vince Sr. for so many different times. They couldn't possibly believe that he would be a part of this. They just, they just didn't believe it. All right? Yeah. You know, I let you watch my wife while I go overseas and fight the war, and you end up uh, having her divorce me, and the next thing you guys are married. All right. Now, 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 because I mean, I know, like, it took until basically uh, May, I guess, of '84, uh, where you guys ran the show in uh, at the Meadowlands in his territory, and but but that thing. You know, because of disorganization, because of so many different chiefs or whatever it was, that thing never really took hold and never really damaged him in his own territory. And he was running around, going into you know, this, he, he went into, uh, in a lot of cases he went into the weak territories first. So the stronger territories like Jim Crockett, you know, um, who had a strong territory at the time, Fritz von Erich had a strong territory, uh, Watts had a fairly strong territory. Although he went into Watts's territory with with little success at first, um, they were just kind of like. Well, you know, he's going after the small guys. Then he went after them, and everybody was, you know, nobody was able to mobilize and fight Vince. And then uh, when he got the WrestleMania and Mr. T and all that, uh, to the most people, by 85, I mean, he was wrestling. He had TBS. He had USA Network. He had, you know, people thinking that he had invented this product that had actually been successful for years. And, and then everyone was starting to play catch-up on him. Who was playing catch-up? It was over. Yeah. Well, ask yourself this question: How successful is he now? Well, he's he is is very successful, even though he he has his business ups and downs. I mean, he's worth you know seven hundred million dollars this week, I think. You know what? Let me ask, okay. How successful is Georgia since he's taken over? Well, if you're talking about like house shows in a territory, when the last time they ran Georgia, they did ter they did terrible. How successful is he in Minneapolis since he took over? Well, they, 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 how successful is everywhere else in the country since he's taken over? Well, they've had their ups and downs when they had their period from 98, 99, 2000, 2001. They grew the roof, and the last couple of years they've been down at the house shows. But they, they do, they do the, the business is pay-per-view and television now. I mean, it's really not the house shows. The house shows are almost there to get, you know, pay off the guys and to give the guys time to work out their routines, which is a funny word, but that's actually what it is for their television tapings and for the pay-per-views and to give the young guys experience of wrestling in front of a crowd. Right now, I am amazed at how indebted Ole feels that Vince should be towards him. And, I mean, here we are. It's 2003, so we're looking at tw like almost 20 years later. And, I mean, Ole's – he feels like he's been betrayed, Thomas. You know, Ole started the interview as cantankerous. He got to the Jim Wilson stuff, got to the Tom Ernesto stuff, and it seemed like it was going to – when you first told me about this topic, and I'm listening to it, and I'm like, okay, where's the hard right turnout where this interview becomes infamous? Where – I mean, this is it, really? And right now is where we see Ole dive into disillusionment. Yep. Because now he's basically staking the claim that – the guy who's worth three-quarters of a billion dollars isn't worth a damn because he can't sell out Georgia. Not to mention the fact that from the beginning where he, he makes these analogies where Ole went off to war and Vince stole his wife. And he, gave, he gave Vince a ride to the gas station and Vince slashed his tires. I get it that, that certain promoters got help 
in weaker areas. But make no mistake, if Jim Crockett went out of business, they weren't holding a damn bake sale for him in order to get his funds going. Someone was going to buy him out and take that over. Let's not pretend that the, the NWA was the benevolent brotherhood of wrestling. <laughs> let, let, let's, let's just throw away that notion right now. I mean, Brian Alvarez, he's trying to get a question in that I wish he could have gotten in. This is, this is coming up like in the next minute or two, I want to say, is he asked Oli, when did you stop following the business? And there's, there's no shame in Oli saying, I don't know, 1990, 1991, when I, you know, or after I stopped working for Watts in 93. There's no shame in that. But clearly, Oli, he does not know what he's talking about. I mean, how successful is Vince McMahon now? Oh, only worth about $700 million. And it seems like Oli was taken aback by that answer. He genuinely thought Vince was doing poorly. If Brian asked that question, if Oli was being truthful, he probably would have said the winter of 1983. And when, when you <laughs> see how he was booking in, in WCW in the, in the early 90s. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, there's nothing really more to, to, to expound upon this other than this is where you're going to scratch your head. And, and feel free, if you're listening, to pause this when we get back to the interview to say, what the fuck did Oli just say there? Like, yeah. you're going to say that probably another seven or eight times. And by the way, uh, I heard about the meeting between Vince and Oli, uh, I want to say 87, 88, I first heard about it, and I didn't believe the story, and then, or at least completely believe the story, until Oli put it in his book. And there's a little bit of bad language here. Vince and Oli are fighting over the Georgia Terry. They're in court. Oli's trying to get injunctions, whatever. And Vince comes up to Oli. He's like, Oli. Let's make money together. You know, let's do this together. Get in with me. And, and by the way, I'd like to introduce you to my wife, Linda. And Oli goes, fuck you and fuck you, like to both of them. And Vince was enraged. Like that was the end of any possible, you know, working together with Oli, you know, no Hall of Fame for Oli. I mean, Vince has held that grudge for close to 40 years now. And I'll blame him. So I guess the question, the real question of all this is, Obviously, they weren't going to go into business together. They would have, you know, Oli might have gotten the, the Jerry Briscoe treatment and had the job for life. The question to me is, would he have taken Oli and or Jerry Briscoe? Well, Jerry and Jack, I guess. Or would have been the first person to take takes this deal, you know, comes with me, the, the other person's screwed. That's, I, I guess I, that's the real question I have amongst all this. I think that you hit it exactly on the head. He, I think he would have gotten the Jerry Briscoe treatment. He would have had a, a good job for decades if he wanted it. And Jerry was with them. J Jerry just left the company like a month ago. So he was with them for like 36 years. But does Jerry get that job if Oli says yes, first is what I'm getting at? Or is it I, too bad I about say, luck? I got, I, got, I got my piece now. I would say yes, because the Briscoes sold their stocks to McMahon, which made McMahon the majority shareholder. And after that is when Vince said to Oli, hey, let's work together. And Oli said, fuck you. Literally. But then does Oli get the, the Larry Mattisick, George Cannon, Mike LaBelle treatment where he allows him to come in, do everything else. And then like two weeks later, he's fired. It's possible. I think I think if Vince saw Oli as an asset, I think he would have kept him around. I also think that Vince maybe may have given him, you know, a, a share in the WWF. I don't know. 
the only two people that I can come to recall that sold or, or did any business with Vince that didn't get completely screwed were Jerry Briscoe and Stu Hart. And Stu, they really kind of screwed him business-wise, but they took care of him because, you know, Brett and Davey Boy and, and Jim Nyhart and everything else. So he really didn't get screwed, screwed, but business-wise, he kind of did. Gorilla Monsoon made out pretty well. Well, Gorilla was a part of that Arnold Skoland uh, deal where he got points, and and, and the deal that Gorilla got made him a millionaire probably, you know, 10 times over by the time he finally died. Right. So I think that, and and that's the same way with, you know, Freddie Blassie. Freddie kind of got, didn't really get a deal like Gorilla or Skoland but he was told to take care of him. Really, Albano was in that same boat, too, until Albano drank himself out of the job. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say Albano could have been set for life, but he chose not to. All right, we're going to listen to more of this interview from 2003. The, 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 that's not where their money is, is in the house shows. And um, when they do their television shows, I mean, the last thing, you know, they'll mention that we're coming to this city and this city and this city, but nobody promotes that the city is important. What's important is the, the pay-per-view and the next week's television. That's they just changed the the nature. So it's not their number one priority. But no, you know, like they're not selling buildings out at all right now. They're they're in a slump as far as house shows go. Well, I would assume from what you're saying to me that you're very enamored of uh, Mr. McMahon, and you think it's the only operation is a first class operation. It's certainly done more for wrestling than anything has ever been done before. So we're just going to have to go ahead and agree to disagree because. I would say you're totally off, and he's totally wrong, because at one time there were several thousand people that were employed actively in professional wrestling. Oh, yeah. No, they've constricted the business. You can't today. You can't find a hundred today. Yeah, no, they've constricted the business, and it's all them. I'm not sure that it wasn't going to end up that way when somebody got national TV and, and stopped respecting the territorial boundaries. Because... Do you remember national TV back in the 50s or not? Well, that was before my time, but I know the stories of it. When you know. The... Well, good. Was there a national TV then? Yeah, they had to do my network and everything. There you go. Yeah. So Vince wasn't the first one to have national TV. The first time was the Dumont Network. Okay? So all I'm trying to say to you, and if I can get you to understand it, and maybe you won't because you don't want to, I don't know. But there was this thing going on in three territories in, ten- in Texas alone. There was two territories in Tennessee. There was two territories in Oklahoma. There was a couple of territories in California. All around the country, there were a lot of places where you could watch professional wrestling. In this particular territory of Georgia, there were as many as five towns every night in Georgia that were promoting professional wrestling. Not five towns a week, not five towns a month, not five towns a year, but five towns a night. In the Carolinas, there were three towns a night sometimes more. In in, uh, Florida, there were two to three towns a night. On and on and on. So there's nothing like that anymore, which translates to the fact that, number one, there aren't any wrestlers that are being able to enjoy making a living out of wrestling. Well, not as as many. The fans are not able to go see the wrestling because it doesn't come to their towns anymore. But they see more on television than they used to see. No. Okay. Just for the record, Georgia never ran four, five, excuse me, five towns a night. That never happened. I don't think they ever ran four, five towns in one night, let alone every night, you know, five towns Tuesday, five towns Wednesday, five towns Thursday. Thomas, what do you think? Just, I mean, I don't have 
a, a world almanac in front of me. But if, let, let's pretend that Ole's telling the truth for one minute. He ran five nights a week every night of the week. What do you think the 35th biggest town in the state of Georgia holds? And that sport wrestling. And it's that thirty fifth biggest town in Georgia. Is that within twenty miles of anything else in the top thirty four? Yeah, I, you're right. It's just you know a crazy claim. I know Georgia at one point was running two towns a night. Okay, it is possible that on the weekends they may have run two double shots for for you know for four shows. I'm giving only every benefit of the doubt here. Okay. But there's no way. I mean, like Thomas said, there's just no way he's running four towns a night. That's ridiculous. If you're running four towns a night and we'll say this goes into Georgia, into West Virginia, and, and frankly, West Virginia aside for, at that point in time, aside from maybe four or five cities is very rural. And we'll say that Cleveland area. We'll say, we'll use those cities. You're still running 20 high school gymnasiums or in national guard armories a night or a week rather. Yeah. And that's, like I said, back, back earlier in the podcast, that is where you take a bath financially running these guys to all these towns and paying them. And I'm going to say this, you're not going to get main event talent at a high school gym on a Wednesday night. And what that means, and if you're running it every week, like you said, Oli, they're going to get burned out on the mid-card guys, main eventing shows that are on TV, you know, every other week. You can't do that. I mean, the, the novelty of seeing Rufus R. Jones main event a show wears off somewhere between the introduction and the first bell. Yeah. So that's why I, I call BS on that. Just for no, that reason ab- alone. Absolutely. Even if you are running... Bare minimum, you're running five singles matches per night, okay? That means you have 10 wrestlers in five towns. You have 50 guys on TV. That's not possible. Even with with the two-hour show Anderson had, it is not possible to have 50 recognizable wrestlers out there. I mean, it's just it's just a crazy claim. And, and the fact, too, like, nobody, and if you want to kind of say, oh, okay, well, this and that, nobody was doing double shots on a Wednesday. No. That <laughs> There's no matinee Friday show. They ran these shows at seven, eight o'clock at night. Yeah, there was, and there's no way you could get from one show to the other unless it was a Saturday matinee, Saturday night, same with Sunday. So this is like you said, you had to run, and I would even say, okay, four singles matches in a battle royal, an eight man battle royal or something like that. That's still way too much to actually get in there unless you're running sixteen, you know, various job guys out there. To which point. <laughs> You're not selling the show anyway. Exactly. All right. Uh, Now, at this point, I'll tell you what. We'll talk about this on the next break. Let's go back to Ole Anderson being interviewed by Dave. Um, They see four hours of primetime main events uh, caliber wrestling. And I mean, well, there again, your lack of uh, what's going on. How many TVs do you think I was making right here in Georgia? Well, you were doing uh, the two hours on. Well, I mean, you were doing the, the local stuff in, in Columbus and all that, I realized. But, I mean, as far as on the national basis, you had the Saturday and then you had the Sunday show. Okay, how many hours was that? Three hours a week. Okay. But that wasn't main event caliber wrestling. That was television designed to promote the Omni and promote your road shows. This television is standalone television. What, in your opinion, is better? I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying this is what it is. Um,. This is, you know, television has become like, between the advertising and everything, it's become a tremendous revenue source 
for the business. I I like the old business better in some ways. I like the new business better in some ways. But I can't go back to it, and, and you know, I mean, this is just what the business is, and it can't, it can't go back to territories um, because Vince is too dominant, and you can't fight him. You're missing what I'm saying. Okay. You start off by saying, "What do you think is good?" and then you end up by saying, "Well, I'm not saying it's good, but this is what's happening." I'm not agreeing. I'm not disagreeing with you. What's happening? Some of it's good. Some of it's good. Some of it's not good. Um, something that's good. Some, something that's good. The fact that the top guys can make incredible livings. The top guys. Is that good? It's good for the top guys. Um, it's what good. About it, the guys underneath. Uh, well, I mean, all the guys that if, if you can get if you can get a regular deal, you know, you can make a good living. There are fewer jobs, but they, you know, if that was going. I think that was bound to happen anyway, though, because the whole nature of somebody was going to get national television, and the minute that they did, if they were going to be greedy and go all over, a, a Bob Geigel in Kansas City could not compete with somebody who had national television was offering stars far more money. When they came into his city, he was naturally going to be the second-rate guy. And, I mean, you were in enough promotional wars that, generally speaking, in a promotional war, you might have a couple of years, but generally somebody won and somebody lost. And eventually what happened was instead of the promotional war being in Atlanta or the promotional war being in Detroit or the promotional war being in San Francisco, the promotional war was the country. And the last two survivors were Vince McMahon and, you know, Turner funding WCW, which was the, the last group, you know, kept in there. And uh, eventually they ran out of money. They lost so much money because they were running Epley, and that's where we are now. Okay, last week, Will Rickard was our guest, and I've known Will for almost 20 years. And Will once told me that when he is in a battle, he comes after you with a shotgun in both hands. And he said, and John, you come after people with a scalpel, just bing. And right now, Dave is talking way too much. There's no need to smarten Ole Anderson up to the pro wrestling business and how it works in 2003. Like he, you know, all Dave needed to say was, you know, Vince is worth $750 million and he has a television show that generates millions of dollars. The one thing about Dave is I don't think he's ever just going to say, okay, Ole, agree to disagree, which had he done that would have probably made this a lot less contentious. Yeah. Instead, Dave likes to dig his heels in and try to impose why he's correct and why you're incorrect. With a guy like Ole Anderson, that only ends one way. It ends the way it's about to end. Let's continue listening to this conversation. We were in the middle of a discussion about uh, the changes in professional wrestling. I'm, in many ways, they were not for the better, and I liked. I think the territorial system was far better, far superior for creation of new talent, which is certainly something that there's a dearth of now. But at the same time, I think that um, once Vince McMahon went national and was successful at it at that point um what happened was kind of an inevitability there was going to there might have been um a second promotion that might have been able to find him in for a while there was with the crockett fought him for a couple of years ended up going under then turner fought him for a cup for a decade or 13 years and ended up uh they ended up throwing in the towel and, and selling to him because they lost so much money in 2000 um but Inevitably, that's what, what it was going to end up with national companies. Once, once one guy went national and had uh, the network to do it and had the resources to, to basically 
by all the top stars. And the only way to compete with top stars is top stars, I think. Oli. Is there a question there? Yeah, I, 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 I just... If you read the book, what did you think of it? What I think of the book, I thought the book was very, very interesting. I disagreed with your thoughts on talent in that, you know, one of the things that, that I disagreed with was when you were talking about um, that there are a thousand Randy Savages out there. There are maybe not a thousand Ric Flairs, but a lot of Ric Flairs. There are several thousand Hulk Hogans out there. And I mean, in, in 20 years, I've been looking for a second Hulk Hogan, and no one's, no one's truly found him unless, you know, I mean, you've got Steve Austin, who was, who was a huge star, but that's the last... You know, and, and Rock. Now, or are you trying to be facetious? No, I'm being serious. As far as like, there really hasn't. Nobody but Hulk Hogan can fill Hulk Hogan. Oh no, 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 no! I didn't say that. I just said that nobody has. Um, that Hulk Hogan. Oh, wait a minute. I, I give Hulk Hogan. Wait, wait. I, I give Hulk Hogan credit because Hulk Hogan. And I mean, not as a wrestler. He's a terrible wrestler. I mean, I recognize that. But Hulk Hogan did generate income in manners that that nobody you know before him did, and. People have been trying to replace him for years, and nobody really was able to fill his shoes until Steve Austin really came along in uh, 1998. Well, okay. so I mean, I mean, if, if there were a thousand you know, I just of them, have to disagree about everything because there's more Hulk Hogan's out there than you can possibly imagine, but nobody's looking for him. How come nobody can find him? I, I well, who's I, looking for him? Well, I think that everyone in wrestling should be looking for him because God knows they need to make new stars. We all know that. I got rid of Hulk Hogan. I know you did. Which is an interesting. Th you, know, you, know, if you think he was so good? I guess you must think I'm the dumbest guy in the world to get rid of him. I didn't say that, but I did. But Hulk Hogan. Well, somebody must think that. Otherwise, what would I, what would I get rid of him for? Okay. Well, why did why did you get rid of him? Because when did you, you read got, the book, or didn't you? I, yes, I read the book. You got rid of him yeah. because you thought that he was too he was too big to job, and you didn't think that you could push him because he wasn't a good enough wrestler. Well, stop and think about it just for a second now. Let me try to give you a lesson. Okay. You can take it or you don't take it. I don't care. When he was here, brought him in, he looked good. And the conversation, that was it. He looked good. But we were running a territory, by definition, that had towns running every week. Every week. So that means they wouldn't just see him today, tomorrow, or the next day, but they'd see him every day. We were running seven days a week. As a result, you couldn't possibly take a guy like Hulk Hogan when he first started and put him in a town week after week after week after week after week and still hope to have somebody come to the matches. It just couldn't happen. Vince McMahon right now has choice of the whole country to run. And he's only been in Georgia, I think, once this year, twice at most. What in the world would I do with those people and what would I have done with Hulk Hogan specifically if I would have had to run every town, every week, and have Hulk Hogan in that town every week. When Hulk Hogan, I sent him up to New York because they ran towns sporadically. They would run the... Uh, they ran, they ran the big shows monthly. That's all. Yeah. So they could get by with using him once a month in this town and once a month in that town. But every week, no. And then he went to New York or he went to Minneapolis. He went to, to Vern. Yeah, well, before they went to Memphis or whatever, and then he went to Vern. Vern has got the same situation. He was running San Francisco. He was running Hawaii. He was running Denver, Minneapolis, St. Paul. He was running towns again once every three weeks, every five weeks, every five months. So he could go ahead and expose Hulk Hogan minimally so that he wouldn't just kill himself and kill a damn town in the process. And... 
Hulk Hogan learned from who? He learned from Vern. He learned to absolutely put over his own persona, and it made it work when he finally came back to Vince McMahon. If Hogan knew how to do what he's doing, how come he hasn't been successful since he left either Vern or McMahon? Okay, Ole is making a point where I think he is just flat out wrong. He has said this for years that Hulk Hogan couldn't work and he was running weekly. Therefore, he had no use for Hulk Hogan. (sighs) Georgia, over the years, had some pretty poor workers. I'm a fan of Tony Atlas, but he can't work. Mr. Wrestling 2, towards the end of his career, could not work and he was in main events. I mean, I'm coming up with a little bit of a brain fart here, Thomas. Blackjack Lonza got a big push in Georgia. Killer Cox got a big push in Georgia. Can you think of anyone offhand who was every bit as bad as Hulk Hogan yet still got a big push in Georgia? Uh, from Georgia, I mean, I believe Bobby Duncan got a push in Georgia. And I don't he think did. Much of a much of a worker there in that regard. That's one that jumped out at me. And and the thing about it is, only justifies why he didn't push Hulk Hogan or keep Hulk Hogan. And if you agree with that sentiment, you don't agree with that sentiment, it's irrelevant. Because then he turns around and basically admits that Vern knew how to book Hulk Hogan, and that's why Hogan became a star. So only in his own roundabout way admits that he's a piss-poor developer of talent. I've always thought that about the Georgia Territory and Ole Anderson. And, you know, Hogan was there in 1979 okay he was up here in the wwf in 1980 i've seen hogan on the georgia television shows he looks fine there's nothing extraordinarily bad about him but when he came to the wwf in 1980 guess what he was pretty good he was having some good matches against andre the giant who hadn't broken his leg yet so he was still serviceable in the ring he had some really good matches in philadelphia against bob backland i mean I have I have no complaint about Hulk Hogan's work during this time frame. He wrote nearly 40 minutes of background back in 1980, I believe, in the spectrum. Yeah. But the thing about it, too, was Hogan was too big to job, he said. So I guess to answer that question, aside from Andre the Giant and to an extent Tony Atlas, but that really wasn't you know really on television, so it was kind of sort of another rug. Who did Hulk Hogan job to? From I don't. I don't know. To 1990. Nobody. You don't have to job the guy. The guy's legitimately six foot five and change, three hundred pounds of muscle. He doesn't have to job. No, he doesn't. And not to nitpick, but Ole went to Southeastern after his run, uh, the Knoxville Territory after his run in Georgia, and then he went to the WWF. And I, the first time I ever saw. Wrestling on cable TV, I saw Bob Armstrong pin Sterling Golden, a.k.a. Hulk Hogan. Hogan did jobs for Backlund uh, in the WWF, Tony Atlas, Andre the Giant. So it wasn't an, an issue at the beginning of Hogan's career. Yeah, it was what the kind of thing where he's a young guy. And if you're jobbing somebody on a house show back in 1979, you're not burying them. No. It's not as if you were you know, pinning Kerry Von Erich on ESPN for world class. You weren't going to damage the reputation of a young Hulk Hogan by jobbing him out in the Rome high school gymnasium. Right. 
Which is just 26 of those 28, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. And Ole said something during this run that drives me crazy. And really, this is, I think, more than Vince McMahon coming in and raiding Georgia. This is what you know drove Georgia down more than anything. At the beginning of 83, when Ole took over, he jettisoned Paul Orndorff, the Freebird, Stan Hansen, D- Dusty Rhodes, Iron Sheik, all the guys that we wanted to see, all the guys that I tuned into Georgia to watch, the Ivan Koloff, the Samoans. And he brings in guys like Larry Zabisco, Killer Brooks, Pez Whatley, etc. He pours gas on the Tommy Rich uh, versus Buzz Sawyer feud that had been going on since 1981. It seemed like he lost his ability not only to develop talent, but to recognize who had talent. When he says there's a thousand Randy Savages, there's a thousand Ric Flair's, there's a thousand Hulk Hogan's, these guys are legitimately special. And if Ole Anderson could have found a Randy Savage, a Ric Flair, a Hulk Hogan, in 1983, he would have been a lot better off. But no, he decides to push Brett Sawyer to the moon. If he would have found a Randy Savage in 1982, he would have probably had him jobbed out to Paul Ellering in the Omni anyway and killed him dead anyhow. So, oh. what, I mean, it doesn't really matter at certain points in time. You can have an all-star team in front of you, and if the coach is incompetent, they're not going to win games. And that what you just said right there, getting rid of Orndorff, the Freebird, Stan Hansen, and bring in now, I I have a soft spot for I think Larry Zabisco in a vacuum has the talent to sell money. You, you know, great worker, eh, whatever. But I think he can sell money just in the heat that he could get. Killer Brooks has no business being anywhere but as but as a bottom of the card guy by 1983, if you ask me. And the fact that a territory like Dallas sort of kind of let him just walk over there and weren't really worried about him if and when he ever came back tells me a lot about what Killer Brooks' career trajectory was at that point in time. Now, getting back to the, the Randy Savage, Ric Flair thing, I think truthfully, in my heart, Ole knows what we all know. There is one Hulk Hogan, there is one Ric Flair, there is one Randy Savage, but he has to die on this hill that he didn't screw up by getting rid of Hulk Hogan. So he has to, he has to is, is the more he justifies, the more he, he shouts in the rooftops, there's a million Hulk Hogan's, a million muscle heads that can you know, flex their arms and, and scream in the microphone to make, him, make himself believe that he didn't you know, let the golden goose walk away. That's what he's trying to do, I think. Yeah, it, it would be so easy to just say, you know, hey, I had Hulk Hogan early in his career. He, he, you know, he, I think he was better when he left than when he came here. You know, that, that could have been all, but Thomas, you touched upon something too. 1983, Ole Anderson takes over and he gives all of that television time to the Paul Ellering versus Ole Anderson rivalry that no one cared about. No one could possibly care about. When I, when I got the WWE Network and they started showing all the old Mid-South shows, Paul Ellering was a channel changer in Mid-South yes. in 1981. If I was alive in 1981 to watch Mid-South Wrestling, as good as it was in 81, 82, 83, and on down the line, Paul Ellering was, had channel-changing heat for me, even as a good guy. Yep. I did not care about him. I had, the USA-Iran feud was going on. You know, well, not a, not a real-life feud, but the USA-Iran tensions were there. 
and there was the uh, Persian club angle with Ellering and Iron Sheik. You're rooting for the Sheik because Ellering was that goddamn annoying. <laughs> oh, he was he was so bad in Mid South, and for whatever reason, just only gave him so much television time, and he gave his feud with Ellering so much television time, but. Anyway, let's go back, and things are quickly deteriorating uh, during this interview between Dave Meltzer and Ole Anderson. Hogan, Hogan led WCW, and it wasn't just Hogan. It was a whole mixture of things. Whoa, 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 where? But WCW, WCW did some huge buy rates with Hulk Hogan, and they, uh, they did, you know, that Hulk Hogan era. And, I mean, it, it, it was a lucrative era for the company. It went from, it went from the company went from you know what twenty five million dollars to uh, two hundred twenty five million dollars in a couple of years with, you know, with Hogan and during that during that glory period, you know. What and, year are you talking about? Uh, ninety seven, ninety eight were the big years. Oh, I cry. I don't know. Yeah, I can't speak to ninety seven, ninety eight. I wasn't anywhere around. Yeah, um, ninety seven, ninety eight. WCW was was very very successful, and then ninety nine. They, you know, they went with the, with the pat hand for too long, and that's what happens when you go with the pat hand for too long. I think, you know, they didn't understand Eric, Eric Bischoff, in my opinion, when he when he had when he was on his role, he didn't realize that the role was going to end. You couldn't do the same thing week after week after week on television without changing it up and without changing the names up. And I think that that's what. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh my God, you know, I have all these stars, and now they're not drawing anymore, and I don't know what to do. And the whole company went into a collapse. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, Hogan spurred WCW, you know, and they, they had, it wasn't, it was, was not a one man show by any means, but, um, you know, he was a great pay-per-view draw. I mean, I don't know, I don't know that he would still be a great pay-per-view draw, maybe on a one shot every year or something You're like that. You're telling me facts that I'm not aware of. Okay. When did he stop uh, uh, following wrestling? I'm not even sure if your facts are correct, because I heard that he wasn't able to draw any money, but if you think it was different, then I guess maybe you have to be right. You've got a closer... Uh, yeah, he was, he, the WCW had some successful years. He couldn't draw it in 2000, 2001, but nobody could because they basically killed the goose by then by not changing things up. When, now, yeah, when did, uh, when did you basically... <laughs> you should have been a booker. What? You should have been a booker. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, you know everything about it. <laughs> Never... You should have been very successful. <laughs> Not in this era. Well, you're the most you're the most knowledgeable person I've talked to, almost in my life. <laughs> Next time Vern calls me, I'm gonna tell him to go shut up. I don't want to talk to him anymore. I'm gonna talk to Dave Meltzer. All right, all right. Um, now, as far as Flair, you know, weren't that kind of Flair in the book either. Um, well, what could I be kind to him about? Um, I just uh, longevity as, as, as a, in the world. What? You think he was a great worker? Yes, I do think he was a great worker, and I know that you don't. Well, no, but here's the difference. How do you determine a worker? Um, the uh, yeah, I, that's, it's, it's a really abstract thing, but what I mean, do you call a successful wrestler. That's the better answer. That's a better question. Uh, a what do you consider a successful wrestler? Um, I guess someone who gets himself over to the public uh, for years and years and years. And uh, well, it's really, it's a really easy answer. Even you should be able to come up with it. Okay. Does he draw money? Uh, Flair, when business is good, Flair. Is, no, 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 no. Does he draw money? Uh, nobody consistently draws money when when business is bad. When business is bad, nobody's drawing. When business is good, everybody's every Diamond Dallas Page drew money when business was good. I mean, do you, am I going to say Diamond Dallas Page was a better wrestler than um, you know anyone in the world because he drew money at one point in his career? It's you know when when the business is hot. To do in the old days, guys used to just love to go into territory that was on its ass. Why? When I came here to Georgia in 1976. The territory was on its ass. I couldn't wait to start booking. 
because if it did well, there was only one person to point to if it did good, and that was me. And old-timers always like to go to a territory, if they were worth a shit now, I'm talking about the guy in the first match, second match, third match, the guy I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. I'm talking about the guys that were good. A Vern Banya let for for six uh, for say uh, to say somebody mention somebody. Uh, a Bill Watts. They would be happy to go into a territory that was on its butt because that way, when the territory came up, the promoter would have to reward them because they would say you had to be directly responsible for it. So the idea and the guys that didn't know anything were the ones that always wanted to go into a territory that was doing great because they didn't have the confidence in themselves to be able to make the territory work. So when you talk about the territory being down, and so that's why uh, Hogan didn't draw at that particular time, if Hogan knew what the heck he was doing and if he was a draw, it wouldn't have made any difference what the territory was doing. Anybody can draw by your definition if the territory is doing good. Okay, people have different ways of communicating. Only, it seems like, is communicating through asking rhetorical questions. And it stopped maybe two minutes ago, but right now Dave is talking way too much. And Oli, Oli doesn't care. He doesn't want or need a WCW history lesson. I think right now, like, you know, Dave needs to step a l- back a little bit and just, like, let Oli get get some information in which he which he just did you ever been to a bar and seen a know-it-all and an asshole get into an argument about something <laughs> unfortunately yes <laughs> good analogy this is what we have right now going on now the whole thing about the what is a good worker now see to me a good worker is either one or the other if they could sell tickets then I consider them a good worker. If they are, you know, very competent in the ring, they are a good worker. To me, a great worker is somebody who can combine the, the, the two things. Yep. Can you sell tickets and can you, you know, work in the ring? Where Ric Flair is not a good worker, this is now, we've now dived into the Ole Anderson Sour Grapes Tour, where now he's just going to be pissing vinegar about anybody who's kind of leapfrogged over him in the wrestling hierarchy. We've already, you know, pissed on Hulk Hogan. Now we're going to shit on Ric Flair because Flair doesn't like Oli too, I don't believe. And now we're, we're seeing how, you know, this is going to go on. If we would have gone on a little, you know, longer and longer, I'm sure Dusty Rhodes would have got his name thrown in. And, on, and then every other guy who participated in Georgia, Mid-Atlantic, WCW, et cetera. So now we're getting to see now who tops the list of grievances for Oli Anderson. And Dave just cannot let it go. Nope. He, just, he can't even dive onto another topic because he has to kind of correct and argue with Ole Anderson, which for an entertainment purpose is really good. We're talking about a forgotten show 17 years later, but at the same time, if you're CBS and whoever's running the show, you're like, what the hell is he doing? You know, part, part of me wishes I hadn't listened to this show again uh, a few days ago because I, 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 I mentioned I was taken aback by just how off the rails it was. I mean, I wish you, everyone here was getting like a more natural reaction from me. I mean, and you know, I've mentioned this on the show before when someone says, is a wrestler a draw? I mean, I can tell you every time I went to go see wrestling as I did at least 200 times during the course of my life, you know, most of it before 1990, 
I wasn't going to see a particular wrestler. I was going to see the promotion. I wasn't going to see Bob Backlund. No offense to Backlund. I was going to see WWF wrestling. And I don't know if anyone else is like that. I'm sure if Andre the Giant came to Tingsboro, Massachusetts, it would be like, you know, wow, let's all go. But with very few exceptions, I think people go to see the promotion, not a specific wrestler. 100% right. That's why Andre the Giant for his entire career was called a special attraction. Uh-huh. Because you didn't see a lot of seven feet, you know, seven foot tall, 500 pound guys, you know, lumbering around, you know, Kingsport, Tennessee, for example. Yeah. So that was, there was the novelty of it. I'm sure if Andre worked a territory like that and was there month in, month out, it would have dried up. The Andre novelty would have dried up. Now, again, like you were saying about people might go to see Hulk Hogan if they're kids and have never seen Hulk Hogan before, but they're not going to see Hulk Hogan the second, third, fourth, and fifth time. They're going to see WWF. Right. So it, it kind of goes to the same analogy. You don't go to a Yankees game to see Derek Jeter, per se. You go to see the New York Yankees. Excellent. That's, that's the same thing with wrestling. Excellent analogy. I mean, that's, that's the best way to look at it. And the Yankees and whoever else has to build up their brand. And, you know, that's, that's how it's done. And that's how it's done in wrestling. One last comment. When Andre the Giant exclusively went to the WWF in 84, I think he started to lose a lot of his magic. He was on TV just about every week. He was frequently going to the towns. And I, I think he started really burning out right around 1985. I don't think we have too much more of this interview to go. I think there's like 10 minutes, but let, let's roll what we have. It seems that, well, that's what happened in uh, 97 uh, through 99 or through, through 98 in WCW. And from, I'd say, uh, 98 through 2001 in WWF, it didn't matter what they did. Everybody, everybody was drawing sellouts. Okay. Then those same guys, those same guys today, Steve Austin, The Rock, Triple H, they don't draw that well. Are they any dumber when it comes to knowing how to work? I don't think that they're any dumber. I just think that it's the business is, you know, they've been on top for too long. Their run was over. Ray Stevens w was a great draw in San Francisco um, in the early 60s. When I was following, uh, when I started watching wrestling in the early 70s, Ray Stevens was still a good draw. He was probably a much smarter worker in the early 70s, but he'd been in the territory for 10 years. I mean, so he wasn't going to be the novelty draw where he was selling out the cow palace each and every time, you know, and he ended up leaving to go to Vern because, you know, I mean, you can only be in one place for so long before people have seen your stuff. And, you know, I think that what's successful about Ric Flair, among other things, is that he's able to, uh, you know, here we are. He's been on national television for over 20 years and people still react to him and consider him an all time great. What does that mean? Um, that means that Aren't you the one that had a Hall of Fame that you didn't put me in because I hadn't been in a lot of territory? I, 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 didn't, I, I wasn't the one who didn't put you in the Hall of Fame. That was voting. Tell me what you think. I mean, as far as uh, you said that uh, I didn't put you in the Hall of Fame, it's, it's, no, a, no, 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 it's no. a voting process, I, and I only have one vote out of... You're voting me now. What? Okay. I thought you were the one that had prompted somebody to call me about inclusion into a Hall of Fame that you have. Uh, I didn't prompt anyone to call you. Okay. I mean, Mike Mooneyham may have called maybe you. Maybe they're just maybe they're just using your name for the heck of it. Okay, okay. There's there's a Hall of Fame that you know is in the Wrestling Observer newsletter that we uh, do balloting once every year, and uh, it's been recognized in like a lot of other places. And your name has been on the ballot in the past, and uh, you didn't get in. And uh, you know, you're. Well, let me ask you this question: Why do you think I was in wrestling? Uh, why were you in wrestling to yeah. to make a living? No, no. Okay. Then why were you in wrestling? 
I could make a living doing a lot of things. I wanted to make money. Okay. I wanted to be able to do what I did, retire at the age of 42 or 43 and tell everybody to stick it up their butt. Okay. Okay? That was my purpose. I wanted to be able to make enough money to be able to retire, not make a living. I can go do that while, uh, digging ditches someplace. So I ended up going to places to begin with, not knowing what the heck was going to happen. As you know, I started in Minneapolis. I went to Calgary for about four weeks, and I left there. It was nothing. I then came down to the Carolinas, and we made money there. That's the only reason I would be in this business. Again, if you've read the book, you know I told Vern, if I can't make money wrestling, I'm not going to be a referee. I'm not going to be a guy hauling the ring around. I'll be out of here in a heartbeat. I'm gone. Okay, so then I was in Omaha. I was in Chicago. I was in different places wrestling, trying to find myself and trying to be able to determine where I would be able to make money. When I came to the Carolinas in 68, with less than a year in the business, we were starting to make some money. I was getting ready to leave, and the old man said, you can just stay here as long as you want. And always my answer was the same. <clears throat> if I make money, I stay. If I don't make money, i got to go. Well, then I came to the Carol I came to Georgia, and it was the same thing. Now, again, it depends on what people call money. But there was a time I would venture to say that I was the highest-paid guy next to the world champion. Now... Because I stayed in the Carolinas and I stayed in Georgia and had my little trip to Florida and spent a few uh, months when I was starting out in Minneapolis and Canada and in Omaha, that didn't qualify for some people's uh, definitions to be included in the uh, Hall of Fame. But if they were trying to make money, then making money was the only objective that I had. Had I known... <laughs> that if I could have packed my wife and my kids into a car and moved from the Carolinas to Oregon and spent a year with Don Owens and then packed them up again, took them out of school and gone down to San Francisco for Roy Shire and then waited four or five months and packed them up again and gone up to Minneapolis for Fern Gagne and then packed them up again after four or five months and moved down to Bill Watts, you know what? My wife would have been crazy. I wouldn't have made any money, but at least I could have gotten in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if that would have made a difference. Okay, I'm glad we got a pause when Dave said, I don't know if that would make a difference. Ole is trying to make – Dave made a point that the Andersons, when they were a tag team – by the way, I think the Andersons should be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. But anyway, not only is a single, but the Andersons. I think the, the point Dave was making was back when this interview took place in 2003 – there were not very many tag teams in the Hall of Fame. And if you want to compare the Road Warriors to Ole and Gene Anderson, I mean, the Road Warriors got brought into uh, the Orange Bowl in Miami when they had a major show. They got brought over to Japan when Japan was having a major show in the Tokyo Dome. You know, they, were, they won the Crockett Cup. They were that kind of tag team where, you know, they were almost the Andre the Giant of tag teams, whereas, you know, the Andersons simply were not. The part I liked the most about this segment was Ole Anderson says, I don't care about that Hall of Fame, and I'm going to tell you why for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> yep. Which kind of counteracts what it is about. Now, I looked at the ballot for the Observer Hall of Fame this year, and Ole's on there as a solo performer this year. Had I had a vote, 
I would not have voted him in this year. That's not to say that he is a Hall of Famer. He isn't a Hall of Famer. I tend to kind of go with the wind on that based on the, the available number of spots there are and who's worthy and who's not worthy. He wasn't this year for me. That's not to say in 2021, 22 that he wouldn't be in there. But I think he's you know one of these guys who's a uh, gatekeeper, so to speak. So for him to complain about it as much as he did, that tells me that he's really offended that he wasn't just, you know, advanced directly to go sort of thing, and he wasn't a no-brainer first ballot Hall of Famer. He has a very heightened opinion of what his career actually was. Yeah, and that was one of the things. I mean, this was a, a, a this interview was a really hot topic 17 years ago on message boards and whatever. I mean, I made the observation that only, you know, he doesn't care about the Hall of Fame. He doesn't care, yet he's the one who brought it up. Aren't you the one who's keeping me out of the Hall of Fame? And this is going to come up in a couple of minutes, or maybe not even, that Ole dedicated a chapter of his book to not getting in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So much for, for not caring about it. I will say this, like, I know someone who knows firsthand that Oli is not hurting for money. And Oli, but I, I've always wondered, like Oli retired at 43, end of 86. And I actually looked it up and he's right. He was 42, 43 years old then, the, the world's oldest 42, 43 year old guy. And I always wonder, Thomas, like, okay, he retired. He's got plenty of money. Uh, according to Oli, he could tell the world to stick it up its ass. Yet he kept coming back. He came back in 87 to team up with Lex Luger. He came back in 89 uh, as one of the horsemen, and then he returned as Booker in 1990, and then he came on as a road agent to Watts in 1992. So, I mean, for a guy who you know kept his money retired, he sure had the bug to come back every time he was asked. And I think they get back into that whenever they ask about, you know, how much money Flair's made, how much money this has made. And like Dave said, you just chase the dragon the entire time. Like you, you may have all the money in the world. You may be living comfortably for the rest of your life. But the difference is when you're sitting at home at seven o'clock on a Friday night, you don't have 5,000 people cheering and chanting your name or booing you for that matter. Yeah, And that's the thing that people miss. Yeah, it's like, uh, I think Dave's the one who came up with this. I mean, the wrestling is the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. And with that, let's go back to Oli and Dave having fun with each other. I, 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 don't, uh, I don't know that, uh, you know, guys, I mean, a thousand guys went from territory to territory. Very few are in the Hall of Fame. Only the... The I top guys. Are you missing what I'm saying? That's no, I think point. I think I, I, I it's not it's not necessarily. I mean, territory, I mean, territory, and they're not in it. But the point is, they weren't good enough to be in anything. Okay, That's the, why the, they were even good enough to be in one territory. Okay, but they're not in the Hall of Fame, so I don't know what the point is. I mean, you know, the you know, I mean, if you're if you're trying to you know, Dave. if you're trying to say uh, you should be in the Hall of Fame, and I think that there's a there's an argument that you should, uh, you know. I mean, it's got nothing. To, I don't think it's got much to do with the fact that you only worked in one territory. It just has to do with, uh, you know, whatever the ambiguous. What does it have to do with? Whatever the ambiguous standards different people have to what constitutes a Hall of Fame player. The same thing is in baseball. The same thing is in Standard. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know. It's an abstract. It's an abstract thing, and some Tell people. Me there's some standards, but you don't know what they are. I yeah, I think there's a standard in in that. Um, 
you know, a Jack, a Jack Briscoe, a Jack Briscoe's in the Hall of Fame, a Ric Flair's in the Hall of Fame, a Dick Murdoch is not in the Hall of Fame. Maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame. Johnny Weaver is not in the Hall of Fame and probably should not be in the Hall of Fame. And then you just judge. Well, who should be in the Hall of Fame? Um, and why should he be in it? Um, as far as whoever the biggest, the biggest stars of the era, uh, the biggest draws of the era, the best wrestlers of the era. <laughs> the same thing. Wait, wait, who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Who should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Who should be in the you know, I mean, it's all, it's, it's, all, it's all subjective. I mean, there are no, I can say, like, you know, like, okay, you held the world title for two and a half years, therefore, and you're in the Hall of Fame. I mean, it probably helps if you, if you did, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not, there's nothing, that, it's not like it's a lock. I mean, it's whoever, I, I, I don't know. What, what, would you, what, what would you determine to be, to be a Hall of Famer? Who would you say should be in the Hall of Fame from your era? Who would you say? Who are Hall of Famers who are not Hall of Famers? Nobody. Nobody? Okay. I don't care about the Hall of Fame. I, that's what I'm trying well, to then, then I don't know what we're having a discussion if you don't care. You're trying to say, like, this is the reason that you're not in. It's like, uh, there's, it's not because you didn't travel. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got, it's, I don't really know. Am I just stupid? What? Do you miss everything that I'm trying to say? Or No, you're missing what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say. You're not saying anything. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am, actually. Yeah, I, I am, actually. I am saying. I'm, okay, all right. I, I am, I'm, I'm trying to say to you that the Hall of Fame is absolutely worthless. The most important thing to me was to make money. Okay. Then, then why did you devote a whole chapter to in your book about it if it was absolutely worthless? About the Hall of Fame. To point out the fact. <laughs> I mean, you, you wrote about it in your, in your book, and you said, like, well, we didn't leave, and this is why, you know, I'm not in the Hall of Fame. I don't, and that, I don't know that that's why you're not I in. I don't know I wanted to be in it in the book. What? Did I say that I wanted to be in it in the book? No, but you devoted a chapter in the book to it, so obviously it hit you and it, it, hurt, it hit an earth. Chapter, Dave. What? How many pages is the chapter? Four or five pages. Oh, that's a lot, isn't it? Well, it's in there. Good God. Listen, you know, it's just impossible to talk to you. Okay. You're like an awful lot of people that I've known in my lifetime, and I guess that must be like some people you've known. Yeah. I did it, and you wish you could. Well, actually, that's not that's not the case. I've never I've never wanted to be a wrestler. That's and that's not that's that's not much of a point anyway. I mean, the point is, it's like you know, you're saying that people like Flair and like Hogan and Savage who are very very successful in this industry, and you're saying you could find a thousand guys. You're saying you could find a thousand. They're still working. What? That's why I'm retired and they're still working. Well, they can't give up the ghost. It's not like they didn't make money in the business. Savage made a ton of money. Flair made a ton of money. Hogan made more money than it. Hogan made more money than anyone probably, except for Vince McMahon. Have you got it yet? What? Specifically. Have I got Have I got what? Not you. I don't care about you. Okay, you're saying that... You mentioned Flair. Has he got it yet? Has he still got money or not? I don't know. I just know that he made money. If he spent so much, that's his lifestyle. You know, but the bottom line is... Rick Flair's made money in this business for, what, 30 years, 25 years? If you read the book, you also know that when he was going to get $750,000 because he was a world champion, I told the people at the doggone TBS, the suits down there, I said, if I would have known you'd be so damn stupid, I would have made myself champion. Okay, but you know, the thing is, is, is in that period, in that period in the 90s when you're talking about that, there was a standard, unfortunately, the wrestling salaries, like all sports salaries, escalated. And there's a reason they escalated in wrestling because of competition. And if, no, they didn't escalate because of competition. Yeah, they did. If you no, didn't, if, 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 were you in the business or are you just talking about like you think you know something? Well, I know something about that. I know enough to know that. If, I was there. Okay, I know. Okay, you were, you were there. And I also know, I also know that if, if you were to say to Ric Flair, Ric Flair, you know, you know, we'll keep you and you're going to make $100,000 a year, he was going to go to work for Vince McMahon. You know, that's what it took to keep the guys. And, I mean, 
that's just what competition did to the business. It made it made to keep, you know, if TBS wanted to keep its wrestlers, if Bill Watts wanted to keep his wrestlers, if anyone wanted to keep their wrestlers, they had to pay something at least close to what Vince McMahon was paying, or the guys, all your stars are going to go to Vince McMahon, and once all your stars leave, you're in trouble. I mean, that's what... Know enough to know enough. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mentioned this, you know, when I first heard this interview in 2003, I was like, okay, this is like 95% Ole's fault and like five days' fault. It, it's a lot more than five days' fault at this point. I mean, Dave is absolutely rambling now, and he's talking over his guest, which is something that, you, you know, you absolutely should not do. Like, Ole should be able to say what he has to say. Let's face it, when people, oh, Ole Anderson's going to be on the show, I'm going to listen to Ole Anderson because I'm interested in what he has to say. And Dave is doing 90% of the talking. Thomas, I don't think that's good. It gets back to what I've said a couple of times, I think, throughout the podcast. It seems to me that Dave has the inability to keep his mouth closed when someone disagrees with the point that he makes. He doesn't have the, didn't have the ability then, for sure, to hear a dissenting point of view and just brush it off and move on. He had to tell Oli how he was wrong, why he was wrong, and it's like the facts showing why Ole was wrong, just saying, all right, Ole, moving forward, and then going yeah. to the next thing. And that's a lot of reason why they ran out of time, I believe, during the show, where we never got the question about what happened when Ole met Vince McMahon, because they were too busy spitting their tires on whether Ric Flair has freaking money or not. <laughs> exactly. And, and Ole, you know, does Ric Flair have money versus, you know, did Ric Flair make money? I mean, it's kind of irrelevant. I mean, and I also love the fact that Ole clings to this point. This one person who probably had nothing to do with the contract negotiation says, well, we have to give Ric Flair money because he's the world champion. Ole's like, well, if you're going to do that, I was going to, yeah, I would have made myself world champion. When he says that, it's almost like, he believes it. It's almost like he believes it's that simple, and he could have gotten a three-quarter of a million-dollar job. If only came across three-quarters of a million dollars in the early 1980s, he would have been arrested for grand larceny. <laughs> no one in the NWA, no one in Crockett, no one in Georgia, no one anywhere was going to allow Ole Anderson to be the NWA world champion. He was kind of the gatekeeper, I would say. And this is just my opinion. People may disagree. To me, he was the gatekeeper from what made you a top baby face to a top of the business baby face. Right. To me, Dusty Rhodes was a former world champion in 1980, but he never hit that stratosphere until Ole turned on him. No. And I think that that pattern kind of held suit until really 1983. I, I can see that. I mean, Dusty was, was a big deal in Florida, really big deal in Florida in the late seventies. But I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, is only being deliberately obtuse. It's like, it's really this simple. If the NWA wanted to keep Ric Flair, who had an awful lot of fans, a lot of people, you know, came to the arena to see him. Yes. He was a draw. You have to stop him from going to the WWF, and the only way you're going to do that is to compensate him properly. Right, and and when I say about Dusty, I, I Dusty was big in Florida. He was big in New York with Vince Sr. in the late 70s, but in Georgia, he was still kind of Dusty Rhodes because 
you know, people in Atlanta didn't necessarily get Florida wrestling on television. They didn't necessarily get the WWF at the time. So Dusty was just a, a kind of a, I don't want to say a flavor of the week top baby face in Georgia, but he was a top face, but he wasn't a, a mega face. He wasn't at the point of, you know, a, a Jack Briscoe at that point in time. No, I, I agree with you. He wasn't the point. And that feud with Ole put him, in my eyes, on an even keel with the top people in the business, looking at it from an, an insider's perspective if you were watching Georgia wrestling. He no, was I, the top of the top after that Ole feud. I actually agree with that. The Ole feud uh, did good things, really good things for Dusty Rhodes in Georgia. All right, back to the squabbling. I don't know enough. Good no enough. Well, that's what that's what killed. That's what killed. Couldn't take all the people, no matter what you do. Yeah, right but he now, could certainly he's limited as to how many people he can take. That's right, but he could certainly Are you take. Interviewing me, or are you interviewing yourself? Okay, but he could certainly take Ric Flair and Sting. You know, if those guys let him have Sting, let him have them both. Okay, but but with all of your, if if everyone sees a one way ticket where all the stars get to a certain point and then they go to another promotion, the promotion that loses the stars, the people are going to lose their faith in the promotion. Who was Flair before he became on Anderson? I, it's just, that's the point. He's, he's had 25 years Wait since. Wait a minute. Who was Flair before he became one of the Andersons? Well, he was Ric Flair working for Vern Gagne, and then he came to uh, then he came to the Carolinas. He did very well, and then after the Carolinas, he became a world champion. And I don't know what I'm talking about. I know that Ric Flair has been a big star for 25 years. I know it, but I said, who was he before? Um, start out as what? He was Ric Flair. He started out working for Vern Gagne oh, in 1972. What? Or what? Or do you mean what was? What do you mean by that? He, well, your fans, if you've got any fans, tell them to read my book if they're inclined, and if you think it's worth it, then fine. But since you don't think it's worth much, then they probably. I didn't say it wasn't worth much. I said it's an interesting perspective. But I, you know, I was just talking. Hey, the expert. I, I'm just asking you. I'm, a, I'm just pointing out. You know, like uh, you said that. That they were so stupid to pay Ric Flair that money, but if they didn't, he was going to leave. And who cares? Who, ca- who cares? Who cares? It's, it's, it's going to. If you lose all your stars, you're not going to have a company. Wait a minute! You just got through telling me that you thought that Ray Stevens was great, but eventually he had to go. That's true. But when, okay. but once, you but once, but once you had, once you had national tell, once you had national competition, the game changed. The game changed completely. Uh, any final comments? Because we've got about two minutes to go in the show. Yeah. Uh, like my book or don't like my book, probably a good idea for some of your people to read it. Maybe somebody will get something out of it. Oh, I think everyone will get something out of it. I, well, you, know. you didn't. Uh, yeah, I got your no, perspective you on things. I, no, I you didn't. It's Dave Meltzer on Dave Meltzer. Okay, all right. You're almost as bad as me, because I was worth something. Oh, okay, all right. Um, oh, come on. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ric Flair is wonderful. I didn't say that, but Ric Flair... Rick, 56, and Hulk Hogan can't draw a dime, and Ric Flair can't either, but they're still working. That's good. Yeah, but they had tremendous careers. Yes, sure they did. Of course. Okay. Of course. And Randy Savage had a tremendous Rick career. Flair, the world champion. What? Randy Savage had a tremendous career, too. Oh, yeah. He's wonderful. Well, I'm just making a point. You know, I mean, well, you aren't making a point. You're yeah, I don't, I don't, begru- I don't begrudge that a lot of people were able to earn a lot of money in wrestling. I mean, I, 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 there are times I wish that wrestling hadn't changed, but it did. But that doesn't mean that the guys who you know were the top stars of today are not super talented performers at what they do. Is it possible for you not to be speaking for just a second? Go ahead. Your opinion is different than what you put across as fact. When you say that Randy, whatever the heck you think he is, that's your opinion. I know I'm saying he was successful. I didn't even say he was a great worker, although at times he was. I don't care about a great worker. Okay. Tex McKenzie wasn't a great worker either. Okay, true. So he definitely wasn't. Okay. 
All right. Dusty Rhodes wasn't a great worker, but we drew money with him. That's right. And Hulk Hogan Rick wasn't Flair a great worker, and Vincent Land drew money with him. The match that you see Ric Flair have today is the one that you saw him have ten years ago, which is the match you'll have him see tomorrow. Yeah. He's got one match, and that's it. But and that's why, in my opinion, there's an awful lot to be desired. If he's still able to go out there and wrestle and draw money, then fine. That's all that counts. Being a good worker, that's your... Okay. We are gone. Wow. Uh, I can tell you that the title of this show, I think it's episode 129, is going to be I'm Worth Something. What do you think, Thomas? I thought it was going to be, are you interviewing me or are you interviewing yourself, Dave? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, yeah. it really kind of, it, it, it goes upon that because it, it's really a good point because at some point in time, Dave just argues with something, Ole tries to chime in, and Dave, knowing that the rebut- Dave, Dave's already rebuttaling Ole's rebuttal before Ole finishes the sentence. Very true. Very. I mean, for example, when Ole Anderson asks Dave, you know, what was Ric Flair before he became an Anderson? You know, I immediately I would have said, well, he was just starting out. Are you taking credit for his entire career? Well, to me, it, it made no. And, and to me, I don't even know what Ole was asking at that point in time. I still don't because even when, when Dave said he was in the AWA and then, he, you know, the mid-Atlantic, whatever it was, oh, we never corrected him and said, no, he was this, he was nothing. Or he was, it was, it was almost like a rhetorical question. Oh yeah. And at the same time, there's no answer to that rhetorical question. <laughs> and you know, what's, what's a little bit disappointing and make no mistake. I mean, I admire Dave Meltzer's uh, body of work. I consider him a friend. He's a really good guy. He was not good on this particular evening. And what's a little bit disappointing is that he, he's not new at this. Uh, he had been podcasting on IATA, I want to say, since 99. So he's got four years under his belt. Like, I don't know if, you know, I don't know why, like, he kind of played the role that he did on this occasion. Well, I think part of it is when, when Dave is clicking it's because a he's talking to a Brian Alvarez or a, or a fellow colleague in, in journalism. Yeah. They can kind of go back and forth on certain things, or it's somebody who's coming on the show to kind of self promote themselves. And they tend to kind of toe the line with they, they don't make things contentious. This on the other hand, I don't think only gave a shit. If he sold two books. No, this almost seemed to me, that once Ole, you know, wrote that Hall of Fame chapter, he got on this show to get his pound of flesh on Dave. Yeah. It, yeah, it definitely sounded like that. I, me- I remember, and it was 17 years ago, just hearing about this show that's going to be on uh, Sportsline, and thinking it had potential to be interesting and perhaps a little bit contentious. And, oh, man, I mean, that the last 10 minutes of the 10, 15 minutes of this show was was pretty surreal. Uh, coming into this episode, uh, I knew about its infamy, but I kind of knowing Oli, knowing Dave, I kind of figured that Oli would just stonewall him and give him a lot of one-word answers. I didn't expect Dave to take the bait, so to speak. Yeah, which he did, and um, I, I wonder if that kind of led Dave to book more guests that were 
I don't want to say in his same echo chamber, but but in that same regard, you know what I mean? I do. I do. I mean, and the Observer, especially when Ole was booking in 1990, had not been kind to Ole Anderson. Uh, 83 in Georgia or 1990 in WCW. I mean, Dave, you know, and, and it, it's his newsletter. I don't think he did anything wrong. I mean, we could all tell that Ole was not going to be a successful booker in 1990. I mean, he tried to take us back in time to 1974 and God, it was, it was awful. And that's what I was saying. Whenever we talked earlier, whether, um, Brian asked him when he stopped following wrestling. And if you watch WCW in 1990, it looks like he stopped following in the winter of 1983. Yeah. Because there were, and then you go back into 1993 when he was a road agent and the, draconian <laughs> ideas that bill watts had especially with that cruiserweight division that he had and he basically killed it you know dead on arrival only seems like the best lieutenant bill watts could have had for that format oh my god yeah i mean and that's right i, for, I forgot that oh, the only two people in the world that only respect are bill watts and Vern Gagne, and everyone else is shit according to only you, you even you even mentioned it whenever he would say that he wouldn't talk to Vern anymore because Dave knew more than him sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, but surprising the most is that Dave just didn't cut the interview short and just cut his losses on it. That's, I, I was surp- that's the other thing that tells me why he wanted to keep this going to kind of, cause he had to get that last word in that he was right. And only was wrong. I was thinking that as I was listening to it for the first time, you know, it was like five days ago. First time I listened to it in like 13 years that I'm, you know, I think Dave had, an entire hour to fill, but I was kind of surprised he didn't just let he and Brian Alvarez fill the last five or 10 minutes. You say, you know, okay, okay, Oli, thanks for your time. Best of luck with your book. And thank you. know, Thanks for taking the time. Well, yeah, exactly. They, and they had, they had the, the filler. I believe the WWE had that Armageddon pay-per-view going on right around that time where it just happened or was it about to happen. They could have ad lib for 20 minutes about a pay-per-view yeah. if they needed to. They had the uh, MMA fight they spent, God, 20 minutes on. Yeah, because I'm the one who listened to the entire damn show and <laughs> had to hear about Butterbean and the Giant Silva and all these other guys who were fighting MMA in Japan on New Year's Eve. Oh, that was a treat. But anyway, <laughs> they had things they could have filled the time with. Yeah, I agree. Or, or they could have just, you know, talked about the interview. Well, Thomas, thank you for taking the time on this super long episode of stick to wrestling i have had like i said i have been polishing this for like two or three months where i came up with the idea i hope everyone thought the show was entertaining thomas is there any thoughts you would like to leave with us uh now that we are on black friday the tryptophan from the turkey is really starting to get into my bloodstream now so <laughs> other than stay safe wear a mask what an epic steelers ravens game that we just saw Go Steelers, 11-0. This is recorded before him. I'm just being prophetic here. Uh, <laughs> other than that, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. And we want now that you have a super long weekend, we're giving you a super long podcast. If any of you have been impacted by COVID, uh, I sincerely wish you the best. Uh, I hope you had a great holiday. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for producing this show. Extra thanks to Lou Kippelman because this show is a production challenge, I'm sure. And I'm greatly appreciative 
And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.